I'm Elizabeth Ray. I'm Alistair Stevens. And Tom Cruise is Jack in Legend. Come with me now into a land of mist and memory. Come with me into the distant past to the fictional place, St. Andrews in Scotland. Specifically, the University of St. Andrews, Mm -hmm. where in 1938, Professor J.R.R. Tolkien gave his famous speech on fairy stories. This is a manifesto. It is an absolutely foundational text for the study of folklore, fantasy, and fairy tales. I bring it up, of course, because this week on the show, we're discussing 1985's Legend, directed by Ridley Scott, which is so much more a fairy tale than I remembered it being. Mm. So much more just a straight, old-school tale of fairies and dwarves and brownies and witches (laughs) than I remembered it being. In his speech at St. Andrews, Professor Tolkien laid out the idea that fantasy is necessary for a healthy human emotional existence. And he categorized three ways in which fantasy helps us, in which fairy stories can help us. The first is the virtue of restoration, sometimes called recovery. The idea that by entering into a fairy tale or into a fantasy, we have the jaded mist over our eyes lifted for a moment. And we can see things with that same awe and wonder that we did when we were children. He holds that, of course, to be a virtue. The second great virtue is escape. That... We didn't ask to be born into this life of struggle and toil, and that there is at least no condemnation to the man who seeks to escape from that, right? He compares us not to a soldier deserting his post, but rather to a prisoner looking out through the bars and dreaming of something other. The third great virtue is consolation. The idea that ultimately the world is just. Ultimately, all will turn out for the best. Hmm. Fairy stories tell us that good things will happen to good people and bad things will happen to bad people. And of course, fantasy and fairy tale aren't exactly the same kind of thing. We generally think mm. of fairy tales as possessing a, a a moral element, right? They are supposed to be morally instructive to some degree or another. Little Red Riding Hood isn't just a fantasy story. It's a warning, literally, about what happens if you don't listen to your elders and you walk off the path when you're in the forest and metaphorically about, you know, sexuality. Right, yes. <laughs> but it still is supposed to instruct and to inform as well as to entertain. But those elements, restoration, escape, consolation, do give us a solid interpretive framework for understanding what fantasy stories are and why they are so important to us. So Elizabeth, I guess my question is in two parts. Which of these elements was most important to you as a child when you first watched Legend? And which is most important now? I think the same. I think escape both times. When I was a child and now. Yeah. I always loved especially the outdoors. And so one of the things that appealed to me so much about fairy stories and fantasy was how much time we spent like in the woods and by streams and cottages and like something about, I don't know, gathering flowers and berries and all all of that portion of the fantasy stories really appealed to me. And I had to kind of get through the gritty parts, you know, like like those were (laughs) usually not as interesting to me. The the thing that disappointed me most about legend watching it growing up was that I always wanted more time in this paradise before the fall. You know, I I wanted to have more time in in the perfect world. I lived in a suburb in a neighborhood that sprung up around in the 50s, I guess, all these like cinder block houses. Mm -hmm. 
and in a really flat part of Oklahoma. And there just wasn't a lot of nature there, but I still spent as much time as I could out of doors. And there was like this great big mulberry tree that was on the side of this field, literally behind a uh, an IGA grocery store. <laughs> um, and I used to play house and play dolls back there and under that tree. And like we would pick mulberries and put them into milk with sugar and mash them up to make this kind of like fairy porridge thing. So that is always the part that I loved about these stories is this idea of a certain amount of autonomy and safety in wild wilderness spaces mm. and just being more connected with that part of the natural world, I guess. And then, of course, beautiful, beautiful dresses. I also <laughs> had princess dresses, um, some of which were like, you know, thrifted or found. But also my mother made for me one out of a white bedsheet with gold ribbon trimming. And I wore that thing so much. I, I wore it completely out. It got caught in the gears of my bicycle at one point, And so it had like grease stains along the back. I used to climb trees in it. And my parents were always so worried that I was going to you know, fall to my death because I'm in this massive long dress trying to climb trees. But even now, I think when I go to these kinds of stories, like watching Lord of the Rings, even watching like Harry Potter and, and like those other fantastical stories, I want the comforting solace and escapism much more than I want the idea of justice even, which is sure, like important, sure. but not necessarily why I'm entering these spaces. And what's, what's it there? Tell me more about about Constantly. restoration. Restoration, yes. yes. Restoration. Restoration is just the idea that when we are young, we can look upon the world around us, right? You can look upon this mulberry sure. tree as okay. this wonderful, magical, incredible thing. And then as you're older, you just think that that's going to be a nightmare for drainage on your property. Yeah. And you've got to go out and you know, <laughs> take care of it all the time. So then restoration will be important for me now, too. That was something I was trying to do even today as I was watching through the director's cut of Legend, is to let myself try to be childlike again. Mm. It's a really difficult thing to do with so much stress and pressure. You're right. And even now, like I feel like every time we go out walking, I see litter first sure. and then I see nature. Um, so yeah, restoration I think is really important to me too. It is. And I think it's one of the reasons that even as adults, we sometimes like to return to the comfort and security of the books that we loved as children, yeah. of the movies that we loved as children, just to get some of that, yeah, some element of that restoration, I think. Mm. This, I think, is also the flip side of why, as we grow older, every single person believes that the world is getting worse. Yes. It's something that we ourselves are becoming more <laughs> jaded. And you're right. We're seeing the litter before we see the flowers. Yeah. The litter was always there, you guys. <laughs> to some extent or other, it was always there. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, this this idea that by being presented with something in a new way, mm. we can be restored in our appreciation of it, in our, you know, sense of awe, in our sense of terror. And it's not always positive. It's not always necessarily <laughs> easy and simple and virtuous. Yeah. Horror movies, I think, to some extent can also fulfill some of that same kind of restoration, right? It's interesting that you said that because I was just thinking that part of this, I think, comes up a lot in, you know, spooky season. Like October rolls Absolutely. around, fall comes, and suddenly everything is fairies and witches and goblins and also horror movies. But mm -hmm. there's something else, too, that, uh, I mean, that the uh, cottagecore aesthetic seems to come out. Sure, yeah. And yes. I think that that is connected more to, like, fairy tale and fairy stories. The simple tactile pleasures of, like, a more grounded, more rural, less yeah. technologically integrative kind of life. Yeah. Yes, I think so. I also feel that at least at least to me it seems that nowadays the way that we are making movies 
doesn't allow for as much of that because they're so synthetic. Everything is CGI. Interesting. And I do not find that CGI awakens my imagination or my sensuality or gives me as much of this like, I don't know, this this longing, this nostalgia as these sure. films do from like the 80s and 90s where everything's practical effects. And I don't know if that's just me and my memory. Right, that, that you're seeing the litter of CGI rather than exactly. the flowers of, of shaky practical effects. Yeah, yeah. I, I don't know. But I, I know that... I feel differently when I see practical effects than I do when I see CGI. I know. I I keep thinking about how great Tim Curry's costuming looks in this. And I know that he's set for five hours to look like he does. So it's a lot of work. But I'm comparing that to Josh Brolin as Thanos. And to me, they're just acres apart picking kind of a high point there honestly like Thanos no, is one of the more successful Marvel characters exactly. in terms of his appearance on screen and the, the degree to which his performance can penetrate through the the CGI prosthetics that yeah. are on him I, I hear what you're saying I think there's an element too in which modern digital filmmaking is just in some ways easier because there's no push and pull between what you can conceive and what you can realize on screen you can mm. do anything now yeah, more or inside less, of sure. inside of a computer framework, you can do basically anything. So you don't have to compromise. You don't have to demonstrate ingenuity. Mm. No one in the modern world would have a figure in a glittery black bodysuit dancing inside of a dress on a real set with that massive fireplace that's like eight yeah. feet tall and real fire. All of that is a compromise, but through <sighs> that compromise comes a kind of artistic vision and a kind of artistic yeah. aspiration that you simply don't have to go looking for. If you are Disney and you're just generating, you know, four Marvel movies and two series a year. And we should take a moment, too, to pay due respects to those artists who are working in those environments under incredible crunch, oftentimes for very little money, very bad circumstances. I'm hoping that their unions, too, will step up soon Mm -hmm. and be able to uh, get some better working conditions for those artists. But ultimately, I think you're right. I think that there is a magical, alchemical element to Mm. the process of filmmaking particularly back when we were shooting on real film, right? Which is itself an analog medium. Yeah. So there are myriad imperfections and accessions and exclusions which make every frame subtly different. There's no such thing as perfection when you are shooting on film. There's no such thing as perfection when you are shooting on a soundstage in Mm. Pinewood in London. There is no (laughs) such thing as perfection when you are dealing with real fire effects and real water effects, real pyrotechnics and on-set special effects and prosthetics. Yeah, You just can't be clean. So instead, you have to be big. Instead, you have to be more effusive, which this film... Wow, certainly is. I just think the production value on this film is out of this world. I've never seen anything like it. Even now, I think it is unique. Even viewed, it makes more sense in its context, which we'll talk about in just a little while. But if you think of it as a mid-80s fantasy film and you put it alongside other mid-80s fantasy films, it kind of makes more sense. Yeah. There is more of a cohesive visual language in that that tier of cinema, that stratum of cinema. Mm -hmm. But looking at it now in 2023, you're right, alongside Marvel movies, alongside even the Lord of the Rings, right? My beloved Lord of the Rings. It just looks insane in a brilliant and dizzying and ambitious way. And absolutely not what I associate with director Ridley Scott. (laughs) Certainly not. I don't think it's pulling the curtain too far back to reveal that I have written more notes for this episode of The Last Star in Hollywood (laughs) than 
basically any two other episodes combined. Yeah. I have no idea how long this episode is going to be. And I have written just as many fewer notes sure. because <laughs> this is one that is just all about feelings and nostalgia for me. Yeah. You're the sensualist, as always. You're here for the sense experience. <laughs> Absolutely. Before we get into the deep background, though, I am going to undertake what is in some senses an impossible task. It's my turn on the trailer game this week. Oh. <laughs> Do you have a starting point? Do you have Ooh. anything for me to, well, to, to latch on to? I will give you this. You should do the trailer game for the theatrical release and not the director's cut, I think. Okay. Which is a different vibe, I would say. Huh. That's interesting. Yeah. Yeah. We'll talk a little about the differences between the uh, theatrical cut and the director's cut as we move forward. Yeah. That seems more difficult. I'm, I'm going to have to give this so. some thought. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Because the director's cut is so hard to get a hold of right now, I would say that you just about have to do the theatrical release because I think most of our <laughs> listeners won't be able to get director's cut. Although I will tell you right now, spend the eight or nine bucks, get the Blu-ray, yeah. watch the director's cut. If you have any love for or nostalgia for this kind of film or this film in particular, it is worth it, I promise you. I am going to gently interpose myself just a little between you and our audience at this point and mm -hmm. say that Elizabeth is real starry-eyed about the director's cut, you guys. And though it is better, it is better. The theatrical cut is still pretty special. <laughs> so oh, no, it is special. If of all course. you've got is the theatrical cut, go ahead and watch it. Yes. I hope you've watched it already. Otherwise, why are you listening to this podcast? <laughs> all right. Trailer game. Trailer game. Here we go. Let's go. Deep in the forest, deeper than any mortal man may tread, the light of creation is concealed within the horns of the last unicorns. This light ensures that the sun will rise each day and ensure that darkness itself will remain sequestered and secluded in its ancient barren fortress. But Princess Lily knows nothing of ancient darkness and in her innocence approaches the unicorns, causing a chain of events that might lead the whole world to fall under Tim Curry's sway, <laughs> which we're told would be bad, but also probably sexy. Tom Cruise, Mia Sara, all of Tim Curry, Ridley Scott's legend. <laughs> Very good. That was absolutely terrific. I, and I agree, Tim Curry's Darkness World looks kind of okay. <laughs> like, it does look so bad, right? Yeah. I mean, as an adult, definitely. Sure. When, yeah. when I watched it when I was a kid, I definitely just wanted to go back to the pretty meadow. But now... Now? I mean... You'd at least want to have a little pied-à-terre in the Darkness's <laughs> Fortress, right? Exactly. Probably some kind of secret basement. Let's preface this entire discussion mm. by acknowledging that it's a weird week to be talking about Ridley Scott, you guys. Oh, yeah. Thanks to a recent interview in The New Yorker, the link for which will be in the show notes. He is kind of everywhere mm. this last week, and he is, as is his way, talking a lot about his work and career. The guy has a lot of opinions and is, I think it's probably fair to say, something of a combative figure. Certainly, he doesn't bear with good grace any disagreement about how things went down back in the day. <laughs> there is also, I think, a desire in him, as, as there is to some extent a desire within all of us, as he gets older, to talk about his legacy, to talk about his career, to talk about his work, and make sure that it is understood in the way that he feels it ought to be understood. Right. There's a little bit of setting the record straight that mm. is happening right now. And, and that's all well and good. It's just 
wow, there's a lot of Ridley Scott around this this week. I didn't mm. expect this when we planned out our production schedule for Legend. Do you have an immediate connection with Ridley Scott? Do you have like an immediate response to him as a as a filmmaker? Uh, only that I tend to like him because it's just a big style. And that I'm always surprised that, you know, Legend and Gladiator and Blade Runner, there seems to not be the through line that one would expect in some of his films. Except complete submission to the artistic visual creative yeah. process. Yeah. And because they're great. All the films they... that you mentioned are so realized on screen. Yeah. They are so realized on screen that they can even be a little off-putting, mm. honestly. I would never put on a Ridley Scott film to watch casually. Right. No, you know? I completely agree. It's yeah. something that you want. This it's is immersive. Yeah, this is why you want the 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 4K Blu-ray with the giant screen in your totally. living, right? Yeah. So Ridley Scott was born in 1937 in South Shields in the northeast of England. His father is an officer in the Royal Engineers, and the advent of the Second World War means that he is absent from Ridley's life for much of his childhood. Mm. Ridley moves around a lot as a child, including time in Wales and in Germany. After the war, his family moves back to Teesside in the northeast. He attends the West Hartlepool College of Art and then the Royal College of Art in London. He credits Stanley Kubrick's adaptation of Arthur C. Clarke's seminal science fiction story, 2001, A Space Odyssey, sure. as the inspiration for his filmmaking career. He helps to establish the film department at the Royal College of Art and then goes to work initially as a visual designer for the BBC, where he works on series which will be familiar if you're British and, you know, me, but absolutely <laughs> not if you aren't. Zed Cars and Out of the Unknown 1960s serials. Yeah. I don't know. Okay. I expected no spark of recognition That's there. Okay. I think even in Britain, people would maybe, <laughs> oh, yeah, maybe I've heard of those. He is hired to design the villains in the second story of a new, exciting TV show, but his schedule, unfortunately, doesn't work out, and that work has to be passed to another designer. That show was Doctor Who. Oh, of course. And the villains of the second story were the Daleks. Oh, he would have done so much better. The Daleks Ridley are Scott so stupid looking. He <laughs> really designed the Daleks. Wow, he would have done a better job, I'm sure. In 1968, working with his brother Tony, to whom we will return next week on The Last Star in Hollywood, Wild. Scott starts his own production company and begins making commercials some of which are among the most famous and enduring commercials in the history of British television. His commercial for Hovis Bread, which aired in 1973, was voted in 2006 as the UK's favourite commercial ever. I sat you down to look at that commercial yeah. before we started here. A little heartwarming tale of a, a baker's boy cycling up a, a rough cobbled street in Yorkshire, yeah. delivering some bread and then scooting on back home. It's it as lovely. good for you today as it's always been. <laughs> You can see, though, I think, his visual style. Totally. It's right there. And I think it's important to remember that of Ridley Scott, that all of his training is in visual art. Mm. All of his early work is in visual art. He's not fundamentally a narrative filmmaker at this point. Although there's a nice story to that commercial. Sure, but yeah. it's it's all feeling, right? It's, it's yes. feeling and nostalgia and sensuality. That's how I like yes, my stories. Exactly. <laughs> I this think is we what know I'm this saying. about me. Well, you're like, it needs a plot though, darling. <laughs> he also led the advertising campaign, which rehabilitated Chanel as a prestige brand. Ooh. And he directed the famous, the legendary Apple 1984 ad, which aired during the Super Bowl and is credited with single-handedly yes. transforming the fortunes of the then benighted company into into the technological megalith that it is today. I have seen that. Yeah. Yeah. That's uh, fantastic. It's astonishing. Aired once. Aired well, actually aired in right. a test audience in like Illinois or somewhere, like or Indiana maybe. 
uh, and then aired and then... once nationally during the Super Bowl, and that was yeah. all it took. That's so cool. That's very cool. That's power. The Scott family then are an absolute filmmaking dynasty. Besides Ridley and his brother, Tony, we have his son, Jason, who was born in 1965. He is a successful director of music videos and features, but mostly music videos, including the videos for Past the Mission by Tori Amos, Ooh. Everybody Hurts by R.E.M., Lightning wow. Crashes by Live, wow. and Goldeneye by Tina Turner. Okay. That's a lot of my stuff. favorite songs yeah. were all directed, or the, the music videos for my favorite songs were directed by the same guy. And he directed the uh, 1999 18th century highwayman movie, Plunkett and McLean, with Liv yes. Tyler and Robert Carlyle and Johnny Lee Miller. You've shown me bits of this. Yeah. I thought it was the coolest thing in the world in yeah. 1999. It probably has not aged well. <laughs> not super well from what I've seen, but, but cool back looking. in the premillennial world. Yeah, kind of steampunky, right? A little steampunky, but mostly that's the uh, mostly that's the soundtrack. It was one of the first movies ah. to be overtly historical, but coupled with a contemporary, or not even contemporary, but like a 70s and 80s punk soundtrack. Interesting. It's kind of very much the trick that Sofia Coppola would pull with yeah. Marie Antoinette many years later. Scott's other son, Luke, was born in 1968. He's worked pretty consistently as an art director and second unit director on his father's films, including on The Martian. Ridley's daughter, Jordan, born in 1977, is also a director, most notably for her debut feature. I have not seen this film, but I kind of want to. This film is called Cracks. It was released in 2009, starring Ava Green, Juno Temple, and Imogen Poots as girls at an elite English boarding school in the 1930s. Ooh, okay. I watched the trailer, and it looks pretty good. I'm up for that. Yeah. So we'll maybe check out. I love out. a boarding school drama. <laughs> Let's go. Scott's first feature is The Duelists, which is released in 1977 when he is 40 years old. It's a small-scale drama about two French hussars during the Napoleonic War, which kind of brings us full circle back to where he is in 2023. Oh, yeah, during Napoleon, yeah. sure. It is nominated for the main prize at Cannes. It wins the debut feature at Cannes. Scott immediately wants to, to parlay this success into adapting Tristan and Isolde. This has been his white whale for much of his career. Oh. He wants to make this happen, but he's also kind of kicking around this dark fairy tale idea. He is instead hired to direct Dan O'Bannon's script for the claustrophobic, nasty little science fiction film, which will become Alien, so which cool. makes $185 million off of a budget of $11 million, is the highest grossing film of 1979 Damn. and wins the Academy Award for Best Visual Effects. His second film, and he has absolutely sealed his reputation. Awesome. Scott is then hired to adapt Frank Herbert's Dune, which has been a hot property for adaptation for more than a decade Gosh. at that point. Apparently it can't be done. <laughs> incredibly difficult to put on the big screen in any kind of comprehensible fashion, at yeah. least. That project falters and Scott is grieving over the sudden death of his elder brother, Frank. So he pivots. He needs to work and he agrees instead to direct an adaptation of Philip K. Dick's Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which is eventually renamed Blade Runner. Yes, yes. It is that production basically of Dune that will later be helmed by David Lynch. Yeah. And turn out a film that is mesmerizing in its weird complexity and excess. <laughs> I still haven't seen that one. I'm going to have to one day. Right before beginning principal photography for Blade Runner, though, Ridley Scott takes five weeks to work with American novelist and screenwriter William Hurtsberg to break and script that fairy tale idea. Synthesizing ideas from The Brothers Grimm, crediting Jean Cocteau's 1946 adaptation of Beauty and the Beast, mm. they end up with a script called Legend of Darkness. It is dark, it is adult, it is sexually charged. Uh -huh. It has a villain called the Baron Cour de Noir, 
which is fantastic. Uh -huh. And this is the first of 15 script revisions that these wow. two men will work through as a part of their pre-production process. The production story of Blade Runner is incredible and super stressful, including the last minute pulling of funds right before production starts, clashes of ego between Scott and Harrison Ford, argumentative relationships with the American crew who are not pleased about Scott's unfavorable and vocal comparison between British and American sets. Sure. But the film is undeniably a classic. Blade Runner also establishes an element of Scott's filmography which will continue throughout his career. The guy just loves re-editing his own work, <laughs> particularly when he's given the excuse to do so by the DVD boom of the 2000s. Sure. This lets him have the last word on every point of conflict that he ever had <laughs> with a studio. Yeah. And if Ridley Scott loves anything, it's having the last word. <laughs> In addition to recutting his 2000s films as they are being produced, they all come, all the films he produces during the 2000s, come with director's cuts. Wow. Months later, when sure. it's released on DVD, he also returns to earlier work. He recuts Legend, famously, in mm -hmm. 2002. He recuts Alien in 2003. He recuts Gladiator, which is made in the year 2000, in 2005. And Blade Runner, which he had already controversially recut in 1992, <laughs> he recuts in 2007. Wow. Let's take a quick run through his filmography, though, because those aren't even all of the high points. After Legend, the next peak is probably 1991's Thumb and Louise. So an all-time, hands-down yeah. classic. That is followed by a bomb, 1492 Conquest of Paradise with Gerard Depardieu, which is not received well. It does make its it. budget back, but it is, it is not liked by critics or audiences. He directs G.I. Jane in 1997. <gasps> oh, I saw that too in theaters. Yeah. Weird. Gladiator in 2000, and I know that I have to give I you a moment to talk about Gladiator. Would you like to terrific. do that right now? I mean, it's I, I just think it's a gorgeous piece of work. I think all of the acting is superb. I think the soundtrack is unmatched. It's so visceral and huge and, again, operatic. I just, I love it. I haven't mm. seen it in a long time, but it's way up there for me. Well, we'll definitely get a chance to revisit it before Gladiator 2 Electric Boogaloo comes out next year, I guess, right? <laughs> <laughs> that is a sequel of which I am extremely skeptical. I didn't, is there a Gladiator yes. sequel coming out? Yes, absolutely oh. there is. Uh, Paul Mescal playing, oh, I forget how it works. Interesting. It's Joaquin Phoenix's son or nephew or something there's some kind of dynastic element to the story I've, sure I so it like the kid leaked, i believe yeah 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 okay i don't know if it's supposed to be the kid from gladiator oh it yeah. could be that's an interesting that would make sense yeah. i could see that yeah i don't know in 2001 scott directs both hannibal and black hawk down i saw both of those in theaters which too. is kind of astonishing Kingdom of Heaven in 2005, which meets... I thought Kingdom of Heaven yes. was Ridley Scott, too. I have seen that director's cut, and it is definitely better than the actual movie. It makes That's... no sense otherwise. You yeah. need the director's cut. That is generally held up as perhaps the ultimate example of what a director's cut can do to rehabilitate a film that was not liked initially. Yeah. I think I only saw the director's cut, and someone told me afterwards about all the stuff that wasn't mm. in there, and I was like, then what was it about? Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't even make sense. Prometheus is released in 2012, going That's back to the, the Alien, alien well. Oh, yeah. no, it's very much not an Alien movie. It's an Alien movie. <laughs> all of the initial pre-production was, this is an original science fiction film from epic director Ridley Scott. Yes, of course it's an Alien film, because he also wants to make the Alien franchise, which is very much a franchise that has been handed from director, director to director to director yeah. he wants to make it his hmm. even now he is continuing to work on alien and, and setting the boundaries of what that series can be even though we haven't had a good one since 
two. I was going to say the second James one. Cameron, yeah. James Cameron did <laughs> Aliens. I mean, I like Fincher's Aliens three, but it's a it's a difficult film to watch. Four is not without its charm, honestly, but is, is somewhat bogged down by the Joss Whedonness of it all. Sure. The rest of the series, I mean, all of your covenants and your versus predators and all of those. Right. Yeah. Yeah. It's the law of diminishing returns in action. I'm sure. Prometheus, though, like okay. interesting as a science fiction film, if somewhat less interesting as a part of the alien mythos. He then directs a film that I absolutely adore, which is The Martian in 2015. Yeah, Martian is great. And yeah. closes out with great House of Gucci material too. in 2021. Holy shit, House of Gucci was Ridley Scott? You couldn't tell by its visual excess? I guess I can now that you yeah. mention it. It also had Adam Driver in it. And if Adam Driver is not in a film by Noah Baumbach, he's in a film by Ridley Scott. Wow. <laughs> Okay. You know what? Maybe I'll watch House of Gucci. I've been putting it off. It might be worth the shot. There is Jared Leto to contend with. There is Jared Leto to contend with. Yeah. And isn't Lady Gaga in that one Lady as well? Lady Gaga is, in fact, the I lead in that one, I not believe. not yeah. care for her very much in A Star is Born, although I really did want to. But again, yeah. next to Bradley Cooper, it's hard. It's hard yeah. to shine. It's hard to be the star when you're next to Bradley Cooper. <laughs> That's what they say. <laughs> I have a shirt that says exactly that. <laughs> so now Scott is working on his Napoleon film, which... I will kind of attach a little thought to yeah. this. It feels a little bit, obviously he has been interested in the Napoleonic Wars since his very first film, so we can't take that away from him, but it does perhaps feel a little bit like he wants to do the definitive Napoleon film in part because it's the film that Kubrick wanted to do for his entire career oh. and could never get off the ground. Mm, Kubrick was obsessed with Napoleon and making a, a full epic biopic of the man. And now Ridley Scott's getting to do it. Yeah. So, I don't know. We he saw obviously the... sees himself a little bit in a Kubrickian mold. I think that's sure. fair to say. Which is fair. Yeah. 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 I can definitely see the through line between those two directors. What did you think of the trailer? We watched it last night. Well, you know, it's funny. For all that we're talking about Ridley Scott as a visually inventive director, I saw very little of that. I agree. On sc- It kind of just looked like any big budget historical drama. Yeah. There are some nice camera shots. I, I think... The action is going to be necessarily obscure. You know, warfare at that time was not clear. Sure. There was very little clarity on the battlefield with with plumes of smoke and mud everywhere. Mm. I'm not sure, but it looks like a fantastically mesmerizing central performance. So You think so? That's interesting. I I really like Joaquin Phoenix's performances as a rule. Coming around on that guy like degree by degree, month by month. The more of his, his films I watch, the more I come back around to it, which is one of the reasons that I really do want to go and revisit Gladiator, which was a film that I got, but didn't impress me the way it seemed Mm. to impress absolutely everyone at that time. That's interesting. And also, you know, you're right. I am much more of a narratively oriented filmmaker and film viewer. Sure. Yeah. I enjoy stories more than I enjoy, you know, just being in a music video for an hour, (laughs) which is obviously overstating the case. But if I can disengage myself from that desire for real narrative crunch and structure and discipline and craft, mm. I can kind of soak in a really Scott. I love Blade Runner because you just soak in it you for, just for two it. hours. Yeah. I love Alien because you just soak in it for two hours. So back to production for Legend. Scott takes the script that he has to Disney, who demur because of the aforementioned dark tone and sexual themes. Yeah, yeah. Eventually, he signs with Universal for distribution in North America and with Fox for distribution internationally. That distinction will be important later. Universal demands that the script be toned down and made more accessible for an all-ages audience. It is wild to me that this is rated PG because the sexual yeah. undertones are still 
absolutely there. But they're just undertones, and you can't regulate against. It's true. Against that I didn't kind of recognize tonality, them when I was a kid. Know? Yeah. yeah. Scott works with Asseton Gorton, a very famous production designer that he had worked with on Alien and on Blade Runner to visualize the film's unique look. The budget is set for $24.5 million, more than double the budget for Alien, but a little less, actually, than Blade Runner, which is an interesting thing about Ridley Scott. He is not a James Cameron. His budgets don't just get bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. He is capable of modulating his budget according to the needs of the film, Hmm. which I find really worthy of respect, honestly, particularly for a guy in his position coming off of Blade Runner, which wasn't an unalloyed success at the time, but was a critical phenomenon. He could probably have got more money for Legend if he'd wanted it, but maybe there is a ceiling on what you can do with a dark fairy tale in 1985. I did watch some of the the behind-the-scenes stuff for the uh, Blu-ray that we got, and he was talking about how he wishes now that he had fought for $30 because he thinks that that was the last little push that he needed was just that extra five mil, which is an five million so dollars. I know, isn't that so weird? When you're like twenty five to thirty, yeah, that's the same amount of money. Like that's the same. But then you think five million dollars is such a different life for me. Yeah, like it's yeah. such a different life. I can't even begin to fathom. It's but so bizarre. That's what it costs to employ, you know, three thousand workers for five months. Yeah. It's it's oh, crazy. God. Wow. Tom Cruise was cast over other candidates, including, this is wild, because I'm going to say these names and you're going to think, these people are all of wildly different ages. What yeah. are you ta- how could they possibly have been considered for Jack? But no, all of these actors are basically the same age. Other candidates included Jim Carrey. That is stupid. He is Shut exactly up. the same age as Tom Cruise, 22 <sighs> at the age of production. Kerry, of course, did not get this job. No. and has He basically bounces around. He's not going to break for a good while. After uh, he basically doesn't break until Earth Girls Are Easy, I suppose, in '88. Wow, I want to say. yeah, if we can uh, call that a break, yeah. Johnny Depp auditions for this, he that is I can see one year younger than Cruz. I can definitely see Johnny Depp in the role, and of course, this is the same year as A Nightmare on Elm Street, so he has just had his debut feature, oh, he is just yeah. popping, he is he is hot in the industry, so yeah, he could very easily have, have slotted yeah. right in and probably have given a fairly similar performance, I think so, yeah, because this is the least Cruise that we are going to get out of Tom Cruise's filmography, it seems to me. Yeah, yeah, There's I do think so. not a lot to Jack. He is so archetypal. Yeah, that's a good word. That yes. Really, anybody could have played that part. <laughs> Although, someone with tremendous thigh muscles, because boy, yes. howdy, that's a lot of squatting. It's a lot of squatting, and wow. he's got good legs. He's got I flips will say. for days. Good, flips for days, good legs, <laughs> floppy, floppy hair in his eyes. Yeah. The other actor who auditioned for this part Robert Downey Jr. He is three <laughs> years younger than Cruz. Hmm. He's 19 at the time, but you have to remember how pretty young Beautiful. RTJ was. Big, big eyes. Big, yeah. big eyes. That smile. Yeah. And this is I when can, okay, okay. he's still kind of engaging with acting in a really he interesting just, way. Yeah. He feels so modern to me. It's hard to imagine. It's been a long time since Robert Downey Jr. gave a performance where he wasn't absolutely Robert Downey Jr. Yeah. first, last, and always. Yeah. And well, people say that Oppenheimer he wasn't, though. People say that about Oppenheimer. Yeah, which we've we, not seen we have it. Not so, seen, but yeah. Oppenheimer aside, it's been a decade. Mm-hmm. It's been a good long time. But back then... He could have been interesting. Maybe you're right, too modern, maybe a little too mm. acerbic, maybe a little too edgy for this particular role, though. Mia Sara makes her debut in this film. She is aged 17 during shooting, though it's only in 1986's Ferris Bueller's Day Off that she really makes her name. Mm. She continues to work in film and television pretty regularly around 2010 when her roles become less frequent. Interestingly, and 
I do kind of hate to even talk about this because the last thing in the world I want to do is make the interesting thing about this woman in Hollywood is who she's married to. Right. Yeah. She's been married to a couple of really interesting people. Oh. She was first married to Jason Connery, the son of Sean Connery. Oh. And then she was married to Brian Hansen, the son of Jim Hansen. <laughs> wow. Those are two very different legacies. Right? <laughs> interesting. Okay. Huh. The casting of the legendary Tim Curry in this mm, film is clearly... Legendary. I see what you did there. Uh, thank you. Mm-hmm. It's clearly a relic of when the script was more sexually charged and more it adult-oriented. Cannot help but bring the sexual energy. He is very sexy in this movie. The sexiest Tim Curry I've ever seen, I would say. Oh, that's interesting. He's I... real sexy in Rocky Horror, though. Although, you don't like Rocky Horror. Well, 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 Are people well, going to come well. to you on the internet just, now? Let's, <laughs> let's just back up a little bit. It's not that I don't like disclaim, disclaim, Rocky disclaim. Horror. Disclaim, disclaim, disclaim. It's that I first saw a live performance, and then I saw the movie. So when I saw the movie, it felt really slow and stayed and old. Yeah. So I was also very young. My biggest memory of watching it is falling asleep during it. Like, at some point, I just lost interest. I think that's perfectly fine. Let's make enemies on the internet. You hate Rocky (laughs) Horror. I think Gladiator is overrated. (laughs) (laughs) But this is the important part, is that I have not gone back to it as, like, a queer woman. Yeah. I have not gone back to it since then. So I think that it's important that I do and and that I will enjoy it more and differently now. I think even now it is appropriately star making for Tim Curry. I think think it is absolutely appropriate that his career should spring forth from that point because he is so absolutely terrific. Mm. So incredibly original, even when he is delivering these somewhat archetypal role as he does in legend he's just giving that performance that jeremy irons has given this performance i don't know 19 times in his career but Hmm. when curry does it it feels fresh it feels dangerous it feels sexy Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. it's hard to imagine jeremy irons feeling sexy in that same way interesting sure Uh, sure uh, maybe i guess yeah less scar is kind of the sexiness of it and more I always thought you were a JTT girl, but now I'm seeing the truth. (laughs) It's all coming into focus. I'm growing up. (laughs) So Ridley Scott is considering Richard O'Brien, who plays Riff Raff in uh, the Rocky Horror Picture Show, as Meg Mucklebones, the role that would eventually be played by Robert Picardo. Mm -hmm. But while he's rewatching Rocky Horror, he alights on Tim Curry and realizes, oh, that's my guy. Yeah, It has to be him. Curry is 38 at the time. He's born in Cheshire in England. He graduates from the University of Birmingham in 1968 with a BA in English and Drama. He goes straight to London where he is cast in Hair alongside Richard O'Brien. The two become fast friends. When Richard O'Brien writes The Rocky Horror Show in 1973, he casts Curry as Frankenfurter. And while I was researching all of this, by the way, I found with, with great delight the original review of The Rocky Horror Show, the original stage show from the Guardian newspaper, and I'll link it in the show notes, but I'm going to permit myself the small indulgence of reading these lines from the Mm -hmm. end of the review. Quote, Tim Curry also gives a garishly Bowie-esque performance as the ambisextrous doctor, but for me, the actor of the evening was Jonathan Adams as the narrator, a bulky, heavy-jowled, Kissinger-like figure who enters into the rock numbers with the stately aplomb of a dowager duchess doing a strip. (laughs) There is nothing that I do not love about those lines. (laughs) The phrase doing a strip is so good. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And 
ambisextrous. Like, I understand, <laughs> you guys, it was the late 1970s and we didn't have all the language that we have yeah. now. But if we hadn't, you know, fought and claimed bisexual as a legitimate label and token for yeah. people, ambisextrous, ambisextrous is, pretty, is good. pretty good. I, yeah, I, I would self describe. Yes. <laughs> Curry performs on stage in Rocky Horror for two years, then shoots the film, the Rocky Horror right. Now Picture Show, and the legend is secured. In 1985, the same year as he shoots Legend with Ridley Scott, he also stars in Clue. And for those last star in Hollywood connections, let's remember that he also appeared in The Hunt for Red October, directed by John McTiernan, who directed our October Patreon bonus movie, Last Action Hero. And he stars as Cardinal Richelieu in the 1993 Three Musketeers which film. Which we talked about because with of Rebecca, Rebecca DeMornay. DeMornay, Yeah. Which is maybe the film that we have mentioned the most so weird. on this podcast. <laughs> I can't imagine that we're going to mention it again. Yeah. Does Cruz work with Chris O'Donnell at any point? Uh, I don't think so, right? I don't know. We also narrowly avoided talking about one of Curry's most famous voice roles because our wonderful Patreon supporters made us talk about The Last Action Hero rather than talk about Fern Gully Fern in Gully. The Last Rainforest. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Curry has 242 roles listed on the IMDb and wow. is a national, an international institution. Mm-hmm. Let's do some other quick cast trivia before we get back to the production details. Alice Platon, who plays the part of Blix and also voices the role of Gump in the movie. No. Yes, same actress. That's amazing. It is phenomenal. Her, what a great piece of trivia. Her performance as Gump is extremely good. I yeah. Think. And she's also uncredited uh, for that. Yeah. Yeah. Because the young boy who was playing Gump, his Germanic accent was just too thick. Just too strong. So wow. we ADR. He does a great job too. All though. of that, which is quite impressive. She is a stalwart of the New York stage for years and years and years, but she is maybe best known to contemporary viewers as Bonnie, the bartender at McGinty's and Martin Crane's girlfriend. In three episodes of Frasier. Oh my God, that is her. I tiny, recognize tiny her. Woman, yeah. Very, very expressive. She's great so voice. great. Yeah. Wow. Okay. That's she really is cool. Brilliant in, in Frasier and in yeah. Legend, I think. Sadly, she passed away in 2011 mm. at the age of 63. Billy Barty, who plays Screwball, was also an incredibly prolific actor, over 200 credits on IMDb. A strong history of activism from Billy Barty, cool. including founding the organization Little People of America. But he is probably best known for playing Gwildor in the live-action Masters of the Universe film and the High Alwyn in Willow. Did you recognize the voice? Yes. Yes, yes I did. <laughs> yes. He's fantastic. Barty passed away in the year 2000. Mm. Lastly, we must mention the aforementioned Robert Picardo. Born yes. in 1953, educated at Yale, he gets his start on Broadway and then begins a collaborative relationship with Joe Dante, appearing in Explorers in 1985. Inner Space in 1987, uh-huh. The Burbs in 1989, <laughs> Gremlins to the New Batch in 1990, Matinee in 1993, and finally Small Soldiers, not crucially Toy Soldiers. <laughs> back to Small Soldiers again. Shout out to the wonderful Phoebe on the Patreon page who made the same mistake that we keep making vis-a-vis Small and Toy Soldiers. That would make a great double header. actually. We should do that. Picardo is undoubtedly mm-hmm. most famous, though, for being the absolute hands-down best thing about Star Trek Voyager. Star Trek Voyager. The EMH, That's the Emergency from. Medical Hologram. Absolutely. It is, it's a knockout performance. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Terrific. We love our hardworking character actors here yes. on The Last Star in Hollywood. <laughs> Picardo has 245 IMDb acting wow. credits, with six more upcoming, so more even than Amazing. Curry. 
The makeup effects on Legend are masterminded by Rob Bottin, who had just come off groundbreaking work with John Carpenter on The Thing. Which is awesome too. Also spectacular. And let me say here, the visual effects throughout Legend are some of the best that I have ever seen. I completely agree. Uh, In addition to working on The Thing, uh, Bottin worked on Star Wars. He worked on The Witches of Eastwick. He worked on Mm. Inner Space with Robert Ricardo. He worked on Robocop, on Total Recall, on Basic Instinct, on Seven with David Fincher. He will work again with Tom Cruise all the way in 1996 on Mission Impossible. And he worked extensively on Game of Thrones. Wow. He is huge in the industry and an absolute go-to guy. Yeah. For Legend, he led the largest makeup crew the industry had ever seen. Wow. Besides Cruz and Sarah, who really get a flight. Yeah. <laughs> the average Just glitter. Lots yeah, of glitter. They're still finding <laughs> glitter. Every time Tom Cruise sneezes now, there's four pieces of glitter from the set of Legend. Chicken feather. Yeah. <laughs> Besides those two, though, the average actor working on the film required three hours in makeup every day. Tim Curry spent five and a half hours to have the prosthetics applied and then had to soak in a bathtub for an hour so that the spirit gum would dissolve and they could be comfortably removed. Wow. On one occasion, and this is a terrible story, so if you were squeamish at home, skip ahead 30 seconds. On one occasion, he became claustrophobic and panicked under the prosthetic and pulled it off, tearing off patches of his own skin. So, you, you know, we can, I can be, understand that we can be critical of the advent of, of soulless modern digital effects. Right. But at least they don't hurt Tim Curry's precious, precious skin. Yeah. And that is something that I've been thinking about a lot these last couple of days watching this movie is what it means to the actors to have practical effects versus green screen and CGI sure. effects. Because on one hand, you do think. God, to come out of makeup and look in the mirror and embody this incredible creature yeah. must feel so much uh, so much more powerful and, and, and must help you with your character so much more than just being in like the silly green jumpsuits with like the stickers on your face, you know? Sure, I could see that. I could also see being distracted by, you know, having to wear 40 pounds of prosthetics on your head. My understanding of these particular prosthetics is that they were quite, Movable and lightweight, the horns especially, just weighing sure, yeah. a, a I'm couple probably of ounces. Exaggerating yeah, 40 pounds, but... but but I do know what you mean. I, I know what you're saying, and I I wonder. Yeah, I'm not sure. Yeah. I I feel to me that I would prefer the makeup. Uh, I mean, we're, we're talking about me here, so <laughs> it probably doesn't surprise anybody. <laughs> you want the physical, you want, want the practical, yeah, you want the yeah. yeah I want to be on that experience. set I, yeah. I, much more than entering just a green screened room. I often wonder what we could do today. With modern technology, if it were applied to this kind of approach, if it were applied to yeah. a an actually sincerely practical, not shooting three practical elements mm. and digitizing them into a computer and compositing a scene that never really existed in the real world. Right. Forget about computers completely. Shoot the thing on film. Edit the thing practically. But take all of our modern technology, all of our modern materials science, mm. all of our modern understanding. What could you do? With a budget of $30 million and giant sets at Pinewood. Mm -hmm. I'm genuinely curious about what that would look like. Unfortunately, that kind of practical approach is the sole reserve now of very low budget horror movies. Yeah. In which the goal is usually not any kind of, you know, verisimilitude or or real recreation of a secondary world. It's really just surprise and explosion and, and, you know, blood squibs. That's interesting. Yeah. There are now uh, these sets that have 
all of these screens where I'm not sure what they're called now, but but they, where they will project onto these screens like what the background for the scene is going to look like. So the actors are actually moving in those spaces, sort of. Kind like, of. In the same of. way as you're moving in a space on a theater stage. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Which I suppose would be helpful. Again, anything's I mean, better than better, just like the big green sure. screen. Like I can't but imagine. You're right. You lose something, you know, to, to go back to Robert Downey Jr., for example. Yeah. If you look at the difference between the first Iron Man movie where he is wearing a practical suit that is yeah. large and heavy and uncomfortable and it informs the way that he moves. Yes. Fast forward through to, you know, the end of Avengers Endgame where he is in pajamas. Yeah. <laughs> and they're just CGIing the whole thing. Mm. And it doesn't have any of that same same literal weight. I right. Guess. Yeah. yeah. The tactility. Yeah. I agree. I miss it. One quick thing before we get into the production detail, I should just note that the darkness does, for my Buffy heads out there, kind of resemble when yes. Ethan Rain turns Giles into the Fural demon. They definitely took some inspiration mm. for, for that prosthetic. I definitely saw some Buffy demon in him, for yes. sure. I don't know if I've seen that particular episode, but yeah, I also That's I also a stand a Giles. Great so. episode. All the Giles yeah. episodes. I, I mean, episodes. that was my favorite part about Still Buffy stand. when I watched some for Odd Man Out was definitely, yeah. definitely Giles, 100%. <laughs> so production begins on March the 26th, 1984. This is, by some accounts, a difficult time for Cruz. Uh, this is his first shoot outside of the United States. This is his first extended period being separated from his then-girlfriend, Rebecca de Mornay. Mm -hmm. And it's only two months after the death of his father, from whom, of course, Cruz was estranged. Mm, right. But still, these are, these are complicated times. Mm -hmm. A huge forest with trees as high as 60 feet is created on the 007 stage at Pinewood. It takes the crew 14 weeks to build that set. Amazing. The production also builds out on five other sound stages because of the size of the sets, because of the complexity of the shoot, because mm -hmm. of how many fans they must have had just keeping things blowing through the air always, all the time, and yeah. every shot, it never stops. It gives me allergic reactions I just watching the thing. I don't love that. Yeah, I, it's, I don't love that. It's so interesting that the visual representation of that is adapted by the Duffer Brothers in Stranger Things for the Upside Down as a symbol that oh. this place is not okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How do you know a place is bad news? There's just shit floating in the air Everywhere. all the time. <laughs> all the time. Yeah. It's yeah. distracting. It the my glitter, I think, sure. is wonderful. The but glitter yeah. I love. Snow and glitter. The I'm here feathers. for that. The feathers is the too feathers much. Are the feathers are too much. Yeah. <laughs> and also it reminds me of bugs. I'm like, my sure. perfect fantasy universe wilderness, probably pretty bug free, I you think. Take your you sensualism know? up to a point. <laughs> And thereafter, <laughs> no further. So because of all of those considerations, the film is heavily looped. Most of the lines of dialogue yeah. are re-recorded in ADR after the fact, including obviously all of Gump and all of so Nell. Yeah. Who is, yes. I don't know why. I can't find on the internet why Nell is looped, but she obviously is. Obviously and it's is. every word. Yeah. So I don't know. Yeah. And not very well, I feel. Yeah. yeah. The shoot runs until the end of June 1984. So that's about three months when a fire breaks out and completely destroys that primary set. That set, wow. the soundstage, which had originally been built for The Spy Who Loved Me in 1976. Mm. Most Bond movies still shoot largely at Pinewood, even today. Wow. Two crew members were injured in the blaze, which luckily happened while the cast and crew were offset for lunch. It's a contractual requirement that you have to leave the set wow. to have lunch. Another reason to be grateful for the industry unions who yes. negotiate such yes. things. It was said at the time, and this must have been heartbreaking, that Scott only had two days of filmmaking left on that oh set. God. They had to build it over <gasps> from scratch. He then concluded shooting on that set in one day. 
Wow. So because of that rebuilding process, principal photography doesn't end until October of 1984. Gosh, that must have been a considerable additional expense. Yeah, I don't know. It's difficult to track down because, you know, the industry just wasn't as transparent as it is Mm -hmm. now. It's difficult Mm -hmm. to track down how long he kept people on set. Presumably he released everyone for, for 14 weeks. While this giant set oh was God, being rebuilt. That's insane. But yeah. And I and I will say this is the other thing I've been thinking about with these practical sets, is that my understanding is is that it was largely composed of styrofoam. Yeah. Which I don't feel great about in just a Oh, green, in a environmental environmental sense. Environmental sense. Yes. Yeah. Well, not great about that burning down either. Honestly. I I mean all of that styrofoam burning, probably not good for the ozone either. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. During that period, I believe that Tom Cruise also flew to Florida, which is where they shot all of the underwater scenes for Jack swimming in oh, pursuit of the ring. Yeah. Sure. For they the shot dive. that off mm-hmm. the coast of Florida. While, so the story goes, alligators were less than a hundred feet from Tom Cruise. <laughs> so even when he's shooting a fantasy epic, yeah. he still just wants to do some stunts, yeah, is what it comes yeah. down to. The first cut of the film was 125 minutes long. Scott thought that this was too long on his own mm-hmm. and trimmed it down to 113 minutes for test audiences. The test audiences disliked the film very much. Scott responded emotionally yeah. and went back and cut it down to the bone. Mm. This was the 95-minute test cut that was shown to audiences in Britain. This cut was scored by Jerry Goldsmith, who had previously worked with Ridley Scott on Alien. Goldsmith is a composer with a phenomenal body of work, so phenomenal, in fact, that we should maybe just list the movies for which he was nominated for an Academy Award, right? Yeah, I'm curious. He was nominated for an Academy Award for Patton in 1971, Chinatown in 75, The Omen in 77, Star Trek The Motion Picture in 1980, Poltergeist in 83, Hoosiers in 87, Basic Instinct, again, because everybody worked on Basic Instinct, you guys, in 1993, the previously mentioned LA Confidential in 1998, and Milan in 1999. Wow. For me, though, uh-huh. It's his contribution to the music of Star Trek, for which he yeah. will be most fondly remembered. Mm. Gene Roddenberry wanted him to compose the original Star Trek theme in 62, but unfortunately he was swamped with work, as you could probably <laughs> guess at that point. But he was hired to score the motion picture in 80, which is the theme that is reworked for The Next Generation, the oh. most iconic piece of Star Trek music. I didn't music. realize that. That's lovely yeah. to know. He scores Star Trek V, which is a Bad film with great music. Uh, He scores First Contact. He scores Insurrection. He scores Nemesis. And he writes the title theme for Voyager. And I know that Mm. I already said that Robert Picardo was the best thing about Voyager. But maybe the title theme is the best thing about Voyager. Here's mm. the secret. Mm -hmm. Those first four Star Trek shows, everything up until Enterprise, which has a famously terrible theme, all four (laughs) of those themes are amazing. Yeah, They're just incredible. Mm. Ridley Scott thought that the European cut of the film, which was 95 minutes with Goldsmith's score, which he had spent six months working on, was fine for Europe, but he's still feeling a little insecure about it. And the film needs some changes for the United States. That decision is made in part because, as I said earlier, Fox has distribution internationally. Universal has distribution in the U.S. Fox is happy. They paid a pittance for their their distribution rights. They're pretty confident they're going to make their money back. They release it. It goes out in France in August of 1985. It's released in the U.K. in December of 1985, but release in the U.S. while they are recutting, while they are hiring German synth band Tangerine Dream to completely rescore the film... In the U.S., it isn't released until April 18th, 234 days after the French release, 
28 days before the release of Top Gun. That seems impossible. That seems impossible. 28 days. That's wild. Let's give a little context to the history of fantasy cinema. And I'm looking at the clock and realizing I know we're running long. <laughs> Sink into it. Enjoy it. It's a sensual experience this it week. Is. On this, is this is the director's cut. This is the director's cut. This is a warm bath. So let's run through just some of the films that are Please. operating in this area yeah, at this time. Yeah, I've got, been thinking so much about them. So we've got Excalibur in 1981, mm. directed by John Borman. That's uh, Helen Mirren. Patrick Stewart is in a very small yeah, role. In yeah. that. Liam Neeson is also in a very small role. In Wild. That. Uh, that makes $35 million off of Eleven budgeted. Uh, Quest for Fire in 81. Uh, Jean-Jacques Hano. This is uh, C. Everett McGill from Twin Peaks is in okay. that show, uh, in that movie, alongside Ron Perlman. It makes $55 million off of 15. Dragon Slayer, also 81. Peter McNichols' early yeah. role, uh, $18 million off of 14. We're just making money all over the place. Uh, the Last Unicorn, the Rankin-Bass animated yes. film in 1982, makes money. The Dark Crystal, the famously so weird, but entirely puppeteered, yeah. uh, co-directed by Jim Hansen and Frank Oz, which is a detail that I just love. Amazing. Even The Dark Crystal, which is a difficult film to like. Mm. I love that film, but it's a difficult film to like mm -hmm. and maybe doesn't have the largest audience possible, makes $41 million on a budget of 25. Then, of course, we hit what is, for me personally, and really for the industry, something of a high point. We get Wolfgang Peterson's The NeverEnding Story so in 1984. Great. Terrific. Which makes, on a budget of $25 million, $100 million. Yeah. Cool. And is just a triumph. Yeah. So in the early 80s, you just can't go wrong making fantasy movies. The audience will never be full. <laughs> Except that's the history of Hollywood, you guys. Uh, all, all at once. Sudden. All at once, the audience decides it's had enough. I can't wait till we decide we've had enough of Marvel and superheroes. <laughs> I'm sorry to say, but I am over it. I am not as hardline as you are, but God, I wish we could just have some adult dramas back yeah, in theaters. That right? would be great. Yes. You know? Yeah. Looking forward to Saltburn. We'll see. Sure. <laughs> so by the time we get to 1985, four fantasy films are released in 1985 and none of them make money. Wow. Lady Hawk, directed by Richard Donner, starring Matthew Broderick, Rutger Hauer and Michelle Pfeiffer, loses mm. money. The other big fantasy release, Red Sonja, starring Bridget Nielsen, including Arnold Schwarzenegger in a role. This is like playing off of uh, Howard's Conan stories. Oh. There have already been two Conan movies which were yeah. successful. Even Disney's effort for 1985, The Black Cauldron, directed by Ted Berman and Richard Rich, magically turns a $44 million budget into $21 million wow. at the box office. And then there's Legend. It also misses its mark. It takes in $23.5 million off a final budget of 25 because, of course, we had to add back half a million dollars to rebuild the set right. that burned Oops. down. Mm -hmm. Gene Siskel wrote in a review at the time, quote, I don't want to remember any more about Legend than to make sure I include it in my worst films of 1986 list and uh. never rent it when it comes out as a video cassette. Uh. Oh, no. So it's a failure. That is a big failure. Ridley Scott basically disowns the movie for years and years and years and years. He softens his approach only when he can release his director's yeah, cut, thanks to the discovery of the answer work print in 2000 mm. by Universal. Similarly, Cruz does not like talking about this film. Yeah. He does not like the theatrical cut. He has been, in interviews around the time, warmer toward the directorial cut, Good, but did not like the theatrical cut. So as I said, mm -hmm. in, in 2000, Universal discovers this 113-minute test audience print. This is the print that goes in front of the test audiences that everybody hated, so Scott went and cut it to pieces. They find the actual film canisters, 
but they're somewhat incomplete. So they take those as the basis for the remastered cut, but we're mixing in some elements of the European theatrical mm. cut, which was distributed by Fox, which is why this is not streaming anywhere. Oh, because two different distributors. Yes. God, bureaucracy and capitalism. Navigating the contracts Ick. to digitally distribute this yeah. director's cut is very difficult. Dumb. And it even slices in some footage from the syndicated American TV cut that was made. Wow. So it's it's okay. kind of a mess and indeed opens with Ridley Scott apologizing for the quality of the transfer. <laughs> which, you, which is not bad, I don't think. You can see in certain parts, mm -hmm. right? Like, I don't know why all of the under, underwater sequences are foreshortened the way that they are. They're, they're vertically oh, compressed just slightly. Are. I wonder yeah. if that's a product of, I don't of know. that answer print. I don't know if, the, if they were ever fully developed. But this is the, the Blu-ray release is by far the best release that exists. Mm. And that's it. We're never going to get a 4K release. We're never going to get it up yeah. We're never going to get anything. You know, oh, Maybe someday someone will remake it. <laughs> I hope not, honestly, at this point. No, just make something new. Make something new. I'm so tired of things getting recycled. Yeah. So the difference between the theatrical cut and the director's cut is, of course, the running time, but mm. also the score. When we go back yeah. to fix the original test print and turn it into the director's cut, we can preserve all of Jerry Goldsmith's original yeah. score, which I think is great. I watched the director's cut this morning and heard the Goldsmith score for the first time. And I really did like it. I think it made the movie feel much more timeless. But there's something about like the 80s-ness that I also just like. I mean, and it might, again, just be nostalgia, but there's something about it that's that kind of puts it in its moment in time yeah, yeah. that I find really interesting, especially in that Lisa Frank... There was a time, too, where, like, I remember going to my friend's basement, and he had this really cool fish tank that had this, like, glittery castle with a dragon in the fish tank, you know? Cool. And also, like, all of the dragons holding crystal balls sure. in the 90s. You know sure. what I'm talking yeah, about? Totally Late did. 80s, yeah. early 90s. So you there's go to something... a little store in the strip mall. You buy your incense. You yeah. Buy... <laughs> yeah. And there's, like, all little, the dragon lore. A wizard holding an orb. Yes. <laughs> so there's something about that a stuff that just kind of, like, tickles my brain in a fun way yeah. and, and is nostalgic. I must admit, watching this film for the first time. Oh, and black lights. Yeah. The unicorns are just coming in. And I think this is, Lisa Frank was exactly what sprang to mind. I yeah. thought this could not be more Lisa Frank. And then they started singing Whale Song. Yeah. <laughs> yes. <laughs> uh, yeah. If only we'd had some kind of neon nebula happening in the starlit sky above Absolutely. them. Absolutely. Yeah. Perfect. Who yeah. was that artist who did Whales in Space? Was that not also, I think of that as being Lisa Frank. It's too. not Is Lisa that, Frank. It's, it's somebody else. Oh my God. No. But Whales yes, very much space. of that, he like, Googled. of that time. Oh my gosh, and no, they're right here. black light. Yeah. Maybe there were lots of people doing it. Maybe it was just a trend. It does seem to be a whole thing. I think we're, we're broadly in agreement about the scores. I like the Tangerine Dream score just fine. It yeah. is, you're right, more synthy, more 80s. I think that Goldsmith is doing some really interesting and unexpected things. It is not, mm. as I had read online, just a chintzy orchestral fantasy score. It's oh, no. way more developed and interesting yeah. than that. I think that his score radically exceeds the Tangerine Dream score a couple of times, mm. most notably the first time that we meet the unicorns. Yes. And then the dress dance. The mm. Goldsmith score for the dress dance, I think, is so beautiful yeah. and so, so strong. Mm. And I think the Tangerine Dream score is fine. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, well, the, both of those sequences are clipped down to nothing in that's the also one true. with the tangerine. That's dream, also though, true. So yeah. it's hard to say. Yeah. yeah. But yes, both of those sequences were my favorite sequences anyway. Yeah. And the ones that are like most memorable from watching it as a kid. Uh, but 
infinitely better in the director's cut where you just have a little more time to and sit in them. That's really the difference mm. is the and more drama. Apart from the very beginning with the text crawl, which is added to the theatrical cut, yeah. and the very end, which is radically different in both its content yeah. and its intent. Uh-huh. We'll talk about that when we get to the end of the beat by beat breakdown. Apart from the beginning and the end, the changes are minor. It's a line here, a line there, a beat here, a it shot here. So different though. Every scene just is expanded. There's mm-hmm. very little. I guess the other big difference is that in the theatrical cut, we see Tim Curry almost immediately. Yes. Whereas in the director's cut, we withhold Tim Curry's face for more than an hour. Yeah. And that is the right choice. Yeah. When he comes walking out of the mirror and just like, It makes that reveal so incredibly powerful. But then we never get the great black light Tim Curry with the crazy nails and the eyes, which was really cool. I think that's a price worth paying. Uh, Again, I don't think that it's, yeah. I don't think that the theatrical cut is bad. No, they're, they're just very different. You're right. It's You're right. I'm really pleased to have both better. of them. It is better. It is better. <laughs> we yeah. might have to break precedent here on The Last Star in Hollywood, a precedent that we entirely made up ourselves. Yeah. <laughs> and maybe list this twice when oh, we get to the big list of every Tom Cruise movie ever. Yeah. We'll have to see. We'll see what happens there. If, there's, if they're going to be side by side, then we probably don't have to. Then we don't have to. But yeah. if they're we'll going to be them. split. Mm. then maybe we mm. do need to list this twice. That's interesting. Hmm. So with all of that said, and with all of that runway established, let's move into what I'm sure will be a swift, breezy breakdown <laughs> of this plot. For the sake of completeness, and so that we don't get tangled in all yes. of the missing details, I am going to go through a beat-by-beat beat of the director's cut. We'll only call out the differences, I think, when there's something That's notable smart. to discuss. And we're going to start right there, because the text crawl... Yeah. Only appears in the theatrical version. I don't think it's very good. It's really not it's very good. It's just not is the very thing. exciting or evocative to me. It also straight up changes the story, right? Because in the director's cut, it is Princess Lily, and Jack is some kind of like sprite of some sort, right? Well, it's but then not quite that simple. Even in no. the even in the director's cut, it's not quite that simple. Okay. But yes, Princess Lily certainly. Lily is a princess in the director's cut. We'll talk about how that inflects the ending when yeah. we get there. Jack is a fascinating figure in the in the text of the film because he is neither fish nor fowl. He right? is neither one thing nor the other. He is clearly intended to be magical to Lily, but is treated like a mortal by yes. the fairy folk. Yes. Which very interesting. In my understanding of fairy stories, which is, you know, without Wide. any false humility. Yes. <laughs> you know, extensive. I can't think of a character like him. He is a reference to a figure that is prevalent in rural British culture, right? The Jack of the Green figure, as he appears in parades, in May Day celebrations, is a usually conical figure, a a, a human man, Mm -hmm. strapped into a conical system of, of wood and chicken wire that is then covered in greenery, right? It, It is, he looks like a walking Christmas tree. That is that is what Jack of the Green that's has so become. Funny. I was picturing like the Jolly Green Giant from like the well, Green Bean Can. And that's the much, much older tradition. There's oh. some dispute among folklorists about whether or not Jack of the Green is simply an evolution of what was a fun, silly trend back in like the 18th century of milkmaids 
atopping their hats. Uh, originally, their their pails, their buckets, uh-huh. right, with greenery, right. They would decorate their buckets with greenery, and they would parade, they would promenade, they would process uh-huh. on May Day. That turned into well, we will wear greenery on our heads, and as that greenery became more and more and more elaborate, it turns into just a dude wearing a Christmas tree. Right? <laughs> okay. <laughs> but some folklorists do tie that impulse back to the traditional folkloric figure of the green man, who is much more dangerous and malevolent and, and just much more fairy, right? Mm-hmm. With the capital F-A-E-R-I-E right. spelling. Mm-hmm. The, the, this, this figure of primal inhumanity. Interesting. So Jack, who is credited as Jack of the Green... Is he? In some sources, yes. Ah, uh, in some sources. Does Interesting. get tied back to that tradition, but the story treats him like he is a mortal man. So perhaps the closest read that we can do is that he is a mortal man who has trespassed into the world of fairy. That oh, he has been kind okay. of seduced by fairy over home. the years. Yes. Yeah, okay. So Interesting. he's of neither world, mm. which actually does tie into his ability yeah. to slay the swamp witch and ultimately defeat darkness because the 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 hero who belongs to neither world is oftentimes a figure who can resolve these these disputes. Yes, that's interesting. Yeah. Okay, very cool. We'll continue to talk about Jack, I think, mm-hmm. as we move forward and certainly talk about where exactly this story falls in the folkloric tradition, in the fantasy tradition, and in the tradition of something that is also weirdly Christian in its theology. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. There are overtones. Right. And those are, I think you're completely right, somewhat established by the addition of this very insecure theatrical text crawl, (laughs) which is just, and we have to remember, of course, this is a few years after Star Wars. So text crawls are big. They are, and they are all over the place. But it's not good. No. The Lord of Darkness retreated deep into the shadows of the earth, plotting his return to power by banishing light forever. You'll notice that this text scroll even echoes Star Wars in that it has the rare four-period ellipsis. Wow. It uses that, which is absolutely a Star Wars thing. absurd. Yeah, okay. But precious light is protected, harbored in the souls of unicorns, the most mystical of all creatures. It doesn't do anything. I was going to say, all of this is stated in the film. It absolutely is. But again, this is for the American theatrical cut. And Ridley Scott is feeling insecure. He just doesn't trust it. Yeah. He wants people to have accessibility to this story. Mm Mm-hmm. It's worth focusing a little on the end of the text crawl, too. A beautiful girl named Lily loves Jack with all her heart. In their innocence, they believe only goodness exists in the world. Together they will learn that there can be no good without evil, no love without hate, no heaven without hell, no light without darkness. The harmony of the universe depends upon an eternal balance. No, it doesn't. (laughs) That's not what this story... What are you talking about? Besides... A somewhat formulaic, somewhat kind of conventional prosaic beat from Tim Curry at the end of this film. Yeah. No, it doesn't. (laughs) Also, it's interesting that that calls out that Princess Lily or or this beautiful girl, Lily, loves Jack with all her heart because it definitely seems like they're just falling in love. Like it seems like they haven't even said the L word to each other, right? Even more so in the theatrical cut, although we do get the proper kiss in the theatrical cut right up front that we don't get in the director's cut. So we are kind of... Okay. Moving around there. I will say, too, I was not able to track this down because, I mean, it doesn't exist in a recorded form anywhere. In the American TV syndicated cut that we mentioned was cannibalized for certain elements of the director's cut uh, remaster, this is voiced. I don't know who voiced it, and I have not been able to find a recording of it, but the whole crawl is voiced. Oh. 
Oh, interesting. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So if anyone out there can track that down, or if somehow on an old VHS tape, yeah. you managed to record this <laughs> like when it was... taped it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that would be amazing. If you taped this from Sell broadcast on television in 1990. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so the director's cut does away with the crawl altogether, which... Smart is just the right choice, the honestly. Right yeah, Particularly absolutely. because, as you said, nothing here is established that isn't reiterated as we right. move into the plot. It only serves to confuse, perhaps <laughs> ironically. We open though on a blue lit forest with these incredibly tasteful and understated credits, which I just yes. adore. I love the typography yeah, here. I love the treatment really here. Smart. Mm -hmm. Whole thing is working. We get. A deer, we get a bear, a bear? there's yeah. some mammals in a tree, which are just great. <laughs> and then we get the introduction of the goblin figure Blix. Yes. Approaching the Lord of Darkness, who has, let me tell you, a voice. <laughs> we talked a little in our breakdown about one of the differences between the theatrical and directorial versions being whether or not we see darkness right. at the beginning of the film. You're right. I love the the weird glow stick energy that Tim yes. Curry is giving in the theatrical cut. Uh huh. But this is so good. It's so good. It's, it's so a really good. cool introduction, and it's I think very interesting to start with evil and not start with good. It is, and we very quickly establish an interesting dynamic, or at least an interesting symbolic reference here, because we get that gorgeous shot of the dark nail of darkness uh -huh. reaching out, mimicking the shape of Blix's nose. Yes. Which is obviously uh, an evocation of, of Michelangelo's creation of Adam, the, sure. the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel, mm -hmm. which immediately brings to mind, again, all kinds of Christian theology, yeah. that this film is going to play with or dance around or invoke at least? Just a little bit, yeah. I, th I think that they're just used as tropes more than anything else. Like innocence and purity and the Lord of Darkness looking like Satan is about as far as I think it goes. I think we go a little further because we have references to like you're endangering your immortal soul, which is sure interesting. And yeah, again, yeah. We go through 15 revisions of this script, which is drawing inspiration from the Brothers Grimm. It's drawing inspiration from the works of, of Charles Perrault. We're drawing inspiration from traditional folklorists, mm -hmm. many of which through the 16th, 17th, 18th centuries are recapitulated as quasi-Christian right. or, or subversively anti-Christian mm. stories, right? We, we're presenting them in Western Europe in the context of an established Christian orthodoxy, but we're also aware of their roots going back to older forms of stories. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what legend is doing with Christianity, vis-a-vis -vis Christianity. Yeah. I don't, particularly, you know, that argument about balance, that argument about universal harmony, meaning that you need light and dark. I don't know what that gets yeah. us. Yeah, I'm not really sure either. I, again, I really do think that they're just kind of like using recognizable tropes so that they don't have to do all the le legwork of establishing a brand new true true universe yeah which is i have to say the the one part of this film and the story i suppose in in the script specifically that feels a little bit undercooked cuz we also get really weird verbiage sometimes of these modern words mm -hmm. like in this particular sequence that we're talking about right now and he he describes the unicorn horn mm -hmm. And in the theatrical release, it's described as an antenna reaching toward heaven. Yes. And I'm like, antenna. Reaching toward heaven, specifically, heaven. which is yeah. weird. Yeah. So it's just like a weird turn of phrase. And it's cut. In the, direct, in the director's cut, there's um, 
he, he says something else, but mm. antenna is left out, which I like because like, even if you say, well, you know, maybe like the antenna of a butterfly, but that still doesn't quite do the same thing. I don't know. No, I mean, so, that's just a bad description of it, a unicorn. Yeah, horn, right? that is. it was just yeah. odd. Um, and then like, they also say barbecue and shish kebab. And yes. I'm like, these are not words that should be in this fantastical realm, I feel. Those in particular, though, feel like we are echoing a comedic tradition in fantasy films of the time. Oh? Where the comic relief characters will be a little anachronistic, will have like a, a, a little modern association with their language. So oh, that feels familiar to me in the way that it would be replicated in Willow, in the way that it would be replicated in part in The Princess Bride. So of course we have to almost set The Princess Bride apart entirely you as really a text. Do. Yeah. Because mm -hmm. it is so self-aware and yes. aware of its own framework too so mm -hmm. it's kind of a different a different thing entirely in any case we are given our mission structure for blix for basically the rest of the movie which is go and kill the unicorns go and gather their horns bring them to the darkness and the sun mm -hmm. shall never again rise as we mentioned we love blix we love this performance i think so it's cool. so spectacular yeah i got work. a significant distance into this film before i realized that all of blix's lines are rhyming because oh, the really? performance is so good. I usually hate characters who rhyme. I, I find I, it I'm going to say, I find it obnoxious. So yeah. I'm surprised it took you so long to, to realize that It is funny. a credit to the performance mm -hmm. that it didn't stand out. That even this thing that I am, I am poised to dislike went unnoticed because the performance was so interesting That's and complex so and naturalistic funny. for me personally. Yeah. When we talked about watching legend again mm -hmm. the first thing that came to mind was that that no, first really? line black as midnight black as bitch blacker than the foulest witch i just remembered that word for word wow. and there wasn't much else that i did but that just absolutely <laughs> stuck out to me it's so odd we can track the things that left an influence on you can't we yeah. <laughs> so blix is commanded to bring the horns to darkness innocence we are told will be the bait and lure and i mentioned last week in the show that sometime someday we were going to get the opportunity to discuss a tom cruise film that wasn't preoccupied with virginity not today maybe next week <laughs> I, don't, I, don't, I don't remember a lot of discussion of virginity in top gun but now i'm thinking about it and it's not impossible honestly <laughs> So in the balance of all things, would you take the director's cut and the ominous, looming, unseen presence of the darkness over the more explicit, more immediately gratifying theatrical version of this film? Or No, no, I don't think so. I really do just think it's so sick when you see darkness <laughs> with like the long glowy nails and the glowy eyes. It's just too cool. I actually have a record here that in the editing bay, Ridley Scott did say, dude, that's so sick. <laughs> so you're right in step with the director there. Good to know. We cut to Lily, Princess Lily, dancing through a wildflower meadow and singing, which she does in the director's yes, cut and absolutely cut, does not sings. in the theatrical. My she, heart broke when I saw her singing because if I had seen that as a child, I think I would have been so enraptured. I definitely would have known that song by heart. I would have yeah. sung it every time I went walking down by the creek by my house. Oh, my God. If you had seen this film when you were seven. It would be one of the absolute pillars of your personality. I completely agree. Yeah. 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 It's also lovely to hear her sing. Mm. I think Miyasara is genuinely great in this film. I don't always think so, but okay. mostly I do. Certainly everything that's like innocent and pure of hers, I really like. But anytime she's given like the real dramatic stuff, I sometimes... The big dramatic stuff with yeah. Jack in the first act in particular, I think she sometimes struggles with a little. But that's underdeveloped in terms of character yes but her so quasi I mean, villain turn at the end it's cool no it's cool i guess i'm thinking of the part that i really dislike is uh 
when she's in the snow crying to Brown Tom about sure. the unicorns yeah. and it being her fault is tough for me. But you know what? I'd, I'd agree. I don't honestly. even need to say it. Of course she's lovely and she's so very young. Yeah. So it's a great performance and she's she fits the character so well, I think. I think so. Yeah. And and we mentioned Tim Curry like outperforming the material in terms of originality that it feels fresh when mm. he's doing this role even though this role is kind of conventional in some yeah. of its aspects. I think the same can be said for Mia Sara. I think That's that mm. she brings a freshness to Lily. Like a, a genuine ingenue quality to Lily. I'm thinking of, you know, again, to mention The Princess Bride. Lord knows we love Robin Wright in this house. Yes. She's kind of bad through the first act of that film because it's so flat, because it's so tropey, because it's so traditional. Mm. She has her moments and she comes into herself as the film progresses, certainly. But when she is playing the conventional fairy tale version of that character, it's just kind of nothing. Yeah, sure. But I think that Mia Sara never, for me, full, I, I, well, never, yes. Well, she's always giving this kind of, well, I guess Buttercup was supposed to also, this kind of like bratty energy from time to time. This, and like, she feels I do what I want. modern yeah. in that way. Mm. It's so weird that she's going to be Sloan in Ferris Bueller's Day Off and will be definitive of, you know, cute girl in the 1980s. Yeah, true. And watching it now, watching Legend now, I'm feeling some of that modernity. I'm feeling sure. some of that, you know, she yeah. is giving something a that's a, a little bit more interesting. Yeah, yeah. interesting. I think I it's like terrific, yeah. Lily finds an idyllic cottage and slips inside casually, you know, taking food off the table. It's a very well-stocked table. These are obviously not right? struggling farmers for whatever it's worth. <laughs> a clock chimes 10, and we see from the clock a female figure pursued by a monstrous figure, which like is then death, yeah. rhymed in frost, which is so good. Mm -hmm. We get a quick flash of the future here. We get Nell, the owner of the cottage, who returns and gives us all the exposition about well, Lily's a princess. She should probably be off with the prince and not yep. hanging out with the common folk because she's so innocent and pure and good. <laughs> we mentioned Nell being 80-yard in oh, yeah. every line of dialogue. Yes. It's it all really the... shows. It's awkward. Yeah. I do like the dialogue, though, mostly. Yeah, I think so, The exposition so too. is quite, like, playful. It's better in the director's cut also because they give it a little bit more time. Absolutely, The yeah. theatrical release feels breakneck speed especially yeah. with all the editing and it doesn't give any room i think for the dialogue which does take you a moment i think about like when you go to uh, see a shakespeare play mm -hmm. and you need the first like three or four minutes just to like get a rhythm for how people speak and what they're saying it's almost like a different language in a way yes and we're playing the medievalism the, the yes. traditionalism of this dialogue much more straight which i guess is something that we traditionally do in this kind of movie. I'm thinking of Disney movies, right, where the hero and the, the, the good guys are always fairly conventional in their speech patterns. Yes, but the and villains then the have villains this will like, be modern. The yeah. villains will be, you know, James Woods. <laughs> the villains will be, yeah. <laughs> that is something that we see repeatedly, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, the the director's cut just gives you time, I think, mm. to understand what world we're in. I think in a way that. The theatrical release drops you in so quickly that it all feels a little bit force-fed. Yeah. And we do want to establish these stakes because really Nell and her unnamed husband are going to be the practical stakes for the rest of the film. Yeah. We're worried about the world being plunged into darkness, but really it's just them. Yeah. Oh, and their baby, by the and way, the in the little bassinet by the window. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. We must move on, though, from the mundane world as Lily needs to go into the forest. She takes her leave as Nell warns her of the dangers ahead of her. Spriggans and banshees, toadstool rings and willow trees and old oaks. 
Yeah, Very okay. Tolkien. That's, that's good stuff. Yeah, yeah. That's good yes, stuff. I can see you loving that. Absolutely. It's interesting, too, that we're kind of uh, hybridizing all of these folkloric traditions, mm. right? Banshees obviously are primarily Irish. They're primarily Celtic. Mm. Uh, Spriggans are Cornish. They are from the, the extreme southwest. Cool. Uh, they are malicious, malevolent uh, entities. Just just nasty little fairy folk, you know, yeah. in that kind of tradition. The Total Rings obviously portals into fairy traditionally. And yeah, it's hard not to think of... of Willow trees without thinking of Old Man Willow from yes. uh, from The Lord of the Rings. Mm-hmm. Lily goes into the forest. She calls for Jack, who eventually appears after quite unnecessarily frightening her. <laughs> and this is our first glimpse of both Tom Cruise and Tom Cruise's legs. So much Tom Cruise legs in this movie. I'm not mad about it. They're good legs. They're pretty good legs. It is weird when he's in armor later it that he does weird. not wear pants. In like, yes. <laughs> and it's knee deep in snow yep. like maybe fine pants i'm just saying <laughs> but this speaks to his presence as not entirely mortal That's not true. entirely human i mean mm-hmm. certainly he doesn't strike me when he appears as just a village boy who happens no. to be out on the periphery of the forest right yeah this yeah. isn't someone that lily knows in her everyday life she clearly goes specifically to this place to meet with him where he teaches her how to talk with finches. Yes. But will not teach her how to talk with rabbits. Not today. Jack tells her, as you said, that today is a special day. He blindfolds her and leads her to a secluded stream where he picks her up, Lily, just to do a little play on words Mm -hmm. there. She kisses his cheek. The unicorns appear. You don't really have anything to say about this sequence, right? (laughs) Well, first I want to back up a little bit just to say that all of this, again, is so rushed in the theatrical release. We get so much more time with them in the director's cut, I love Lily offering him a cookie. Yeah. And then saying, I made it myself. And then, no, I, I didn't make it myself. I stole it. But I love that as a piece of character work. Yeah. Where this harmless lie that does not matter mm-hmm. has to be corrected because she genuinely is virtuous, because she I, genuinely is innocent. Yeah. I and love that. Her, anytime she like dips her toe into naughty rebellion, mm-hmm. is really quite playful and innocent in itself. But she is tempted by it. Yes, yes, which we will, of course, come back to. Yeah. Uh, but I'm thinking, too, like when she's in the cottage with Nell in the theatrical le- release, she says, I have no time for this. And you're like, time for what? You've been here for four seconds. Yeah. What are you even saying? But, of course, that scene is much longer. Uh, and then here when she dangles the necklace in front of yes. Jack's face, she gets a line uh, about her wisdom. Yeah. And it's just a teasing thing to Jack there in the moment. But. It's called back when he remembers uh, and and thinks about how to defeat the Lord of Darkness. And that idea of her having wisdom in that moment, I think, is really important. I wish it hadn't gotten cut. Because then all the credit goes to Jack. Yes, to the extent that you can give anyone credit for a plan that seems to come out of nowhere. (laughs) (laughs) Be somewhat pro forma, right? Sure. Uh, Again, the rapidity of the execution, particularly toward the end of the film, is such that it's hard to be engaged with the characters. You just kind of have to be engaged with the movement of the piece. Mm. You don't get that those deeper aspects. We should talk a little about the blindfold, which I find really interesting. We're playing with transitions into fairy. Mm -hmm. The blindfold is not a traditional aspect of, of being brought into fairy, right? The fundamental aspect of a fairy story is that either a mortal person will transition into the realm of fairy, which is dangerous, or a fairy will transition into the realm of the mortal people, which is dangerous. Yeah. Fairies are not fun. Fairies mm-hmm. are not to be toyed with. They are not to be underestimated. And you cannot interact with either a fairy 
or the realm of fairy without being endangered and usually changed forever. Yeah. So when we're talking about fairy stories, we inevitably talk a lot about thresholds. We talk a lot about yes. transiting those liminal spaces between the mortal world and the fairy realm. And though blindfolds are not a traditional aspect of that, they do speak to traditional aspects of that because they speak to sleep or, or unconsciousness or oh, distraction, right? Sure. Which are mm -hmm. very much established yeah, means of transiting the trees from, and then yeah, wake up in a different, exactly. yes, okay. And also being led is yes. also a major factor when we're thinking about how we move between these sure, worlds. Sure, sure. I even think of Merida in Brave following the Will-o'-the-Wisps. Exactly. Will-o'-the-Wisps, yeah. a classic example, yeah, yes, particularly sure. in Celtic folklore, yeah. Mm. And I think you're right. I think that does put Jack more in the realm of the fairy folk if he is the one yeah. who blindfolds her and then she asks well don't you trust me and he says i trust you but he also knows that you know that those worlds are separate i he suppose that he has seems to, protect. to believe that that is true yes, yes. Yeah. so we're not going to spend any time on that at the end of the film when we are presumably no. transiting out of the realm of fairy yeah yeah so odd he is definitely presented as a fairy or at least a protector of the fairy realm. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That's maybe an interesting take. A mortal protector or someone who guards the gate even. That's that's an interesting thought. And he's protecting here specifically, of course, on this special day. Yes. The unicorns. The unicorns. Yeah. Yeah. This I is think a these much are... longer sequence. So much better. Yeah. The sequence is terrific in the director's cut. Much more dramatic, much more terrifying in that way that you were saying earlier that the fairy world is supposed to be dangerous yeah. and full of yeah. consequence. Uh, in the theatrical release, she's it just takes no time at all before she's touching the unicorn's nose. But there's a lot of time and a lot of great orchestration by uh, Goldsmith. Goldsmith. Yeah. Yes. Before we get to that here. Um, we also get that great beat of her being curled up because she is afraid. She's because afraid. the unicorn yeah. charges her and circles her. And she has this moment of, of genuine fear. Absolutely. And then emerges from that. So much better. Yeah. It's so much better. Yeah. I really enjoyed, really, really enjoyed getting to watch this extended version. Uh, I also think they did an incredible job with the practical effect of the unicorn horns. Because I was looking for like a telltale wobble, you know, there are and there a couple. Are of a moments, couple. Yes. There are a couple. But only a few. Yeah. Um, yeah. Really, it's great work. Um, I was watching some of the behind the scenes things that were included in the Blu-ray edition, which I again say is 100% worth it if you enjoyed this movie at all. <laughs> it's absolutely worth it. There were six different horses mm -hmm. that were brought in onto the set. And there is a sequence where they show somebody just screwing the horn right onto the little spot that they had mm -hmm. put uh, onto this new horse that they were bringing in uh, for the for the particular scene that they were shooting and you just see him just turning it just, just twisting it just right on twisting there. it right on yeah it's so odd and interesting and i just i don't know i think it's beautifully done i love all the close-ups that we get on the mm -hmm. horn too it looks very both natural and magical and just the way that you would want a unicorn's horn it to look it does know? look organic organic is a great way. word yeah, yeah yeah but still somehow like gold like there's almost mm -hmm. this little bit of like metallic edge to it it's just uh, beautifully done i love it so we get that first moment of conflict and fear between lily and the mm -hmm. unicorn as meanwhile jack is crying out to her telling her not to approach them that this is dangerous yeah as we're cutting away to blix who is readying a poison dart mm -hmm. so that we can you know have a plot in this film <laughs> right yeah it's interesting because they make it seem as though blix is using lily as bait but really it's just coincidence it is leading us toward, you know, a kind of ordering of the world. It is leading us toward a cosmological statement, mm -hmm. a Tolkien-esque cosmological statement about how the world works. Because you're right, 
Darkness instructs Blix to use innocence as bait, as a lure. There is no evidence whatsoever that Blix is involved with Jack taking Lily to this particular meadow yeah. on this particular day when the unicorns will be there. He doesn't even seem to track them. I'm saying he for Blix. I know. Is Blix he? I'm wondering. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what pronouns Blix uses. I don't know either. That's interesting. I was surprised to find that Blix was played by a woman. But then yeah. as soon as I noticed, I was like, oh, no, obviously. Sure. So now I don't know. I think I'm that's happy fine. to be interchangeable with it. Interchangeable, yeah. He, she, they, all fine. I mean, yeah, I have no good. consistency whatsoever. <laughs> it's a goblin. Who yes. knows? Yes. <laughs> so I wonder to what degree you know elements of prophecy are woven into the underpinnings of the story, which is of course completely consistent with what we would expect from this kind of fairy tale structure. That it, it's on this day at this time that these forces shall come into contact with one another. Yeah, it's preordained it in is an interesting way. Yeah. Now, of course, when we do that in folklore stories and fairy tale stories that have been kind of reframed by Christianity, or certainly when we look at the work of J.R.R. Tolkien, the underpinning there is God, right? The underpinning there yeah, is sure, divine sure. intent, mm -hmm. this eucatastrophic impulse that will yield good in the end, even through adversity. Mm -hmm. I don't know if that is what we are supposed to take from this. It's it's yeah. super tempting, right? Because the crawl on one hand and darkness's big speech at the end. Right. Well, and also we're the not fact so different, that the unicorn obviously has some, I mean if the, if the unicorn is the most mystical the most magical of mm -hmm, creatures mm -hmm. and it circles Lily and then decides you are someone who is to be trusted and I will let you lay hands on me traditionally this just means that Lily is virginal yes in, virginal in and pure I was going to say innocent virginal yeah. pure yeah yeah that makes it all the more interesting when she is then taken into the realm of darkness, of the underworld, sure, and tempted. Yeah. Yeah, because I then mean, she is like this paragon We of can't virtue. go too far from her touching a horned animal <laughs> and falling into <laughs> darkness and temptation, uh -huh. right? Uh -huh. well, but I mean, that's literally the, no. the you know sociological underpinnings of a lot well, of Well, and Jack sure gets pissy about it in the way that someone who just got cuckolded does. But what's so interesting is that he is protecting the unicorns, not protecting Lily. He is not, his final explanation is not what you did was dangerous. He's telling her initially that it's right. dangerous. But in the end, what he says is what you did was forbidden. And she says, forbidden by whom? And he says, it is known, Lily, these are sacred animals. Yeah. Which, wow. Yes. Forbidden by whom? Sacred yeah. to whom? Sacred to, what does that even mean? Yeah. That's interesting. And then when she says that she doesn't you care. You risk immortal soul. He says yeah. you're risking your immortal soul. Hmm. Which is an odd thing for a fairy odd. to be concerned about. So are, are the unicorns supposed to then represent the closest thing to God in the way that the Lord of Darkness represents the closest thing to Satan? Could we read it that way? Certainly, yes. That's interesting, because I thought of them more as being like angelic, if you will. Which I think in, in the common conception of the hierarchy of a Christian heaven, Sure. obviously, like specifically if you're a Bible scholar, that is not what angels are or what they right. represent. But yeah. in the common conception, they're not that different. Right. But I don't know. There are so many unanswered questions about the cosmology of this world. Mm. We can talk about darkness's father. Oh, yeah. And the voice that responds to him. Yeah. Who or what, excuse me, yeah. who or what is that? <laughs> so many questions. <laughs> so Blix shoots one of the unicorns with a poisoned dart. Mm -hmm. Meanwhile, Lily talks with Jack. She sings to him to soothe his fears as the goblins track the unicorns. This in the director's cut. In the theatrical release, we get the crazy, weird, yeah. synthy, tangerine dream nightmare vibes, which are kind of fucking cool, I gotta say. 
You think so? I do think so. Yeah. They they were haunting to me as a child anyway. I was so taken with the storm of petals in the glade where the unicorn finally falls mm. and spending more time there. Spending more time. In the directorial cut that Again, I found the theatrical cut to be just a little thin. Buy yeah. the Blu-ray. <laughs> yeah, <it's> so <laughs> worth. <laughs> then we get what is an absolutely fairy tale beat with Lily casting her ring into the pool, telling Jack that yes. whoever finds the ring will marry her. This mm-hmm. is, yeah, this is the setup to any number of, of traditional fairy tales. Yeah. He dives. Great ring too. It is. There's a whole cottage industry online of people recreating both of Lily's dresses and that ring. There's really nothing else. Are they in a shopping cart for me right now, darling? (laughs) (laughs) Is that what you're telling me? Per last week's show. Per last week's show. First, I have to buy you the Elastigirl costume. No, I I don't want that one. (laughs) (laughs) So we get this sequence where... Jack leaps into the water, which startles Lily, even though she definitely threw her ring in there on purpose. He does not recover it because by the time that he returns to the surface, the goblins have severed the horn of the unicorn and the world has fallen into winter. Genuinely distressing. This is very I'm going to be very personal here for a Mm -hmm. moment. One of my great fears is being underwater when there is ice on the surface of the water. That is nightmare imagery to me and has been since I was, well, for as long as I can remember. Sure. Growing up in Scotland, I can see why. Anything that has someone under ice underwater is upsetting. It's upsetting. upsetting. Yeah. This is really nicely done. Mm, Yeah. mm -hmm. I really like, again, the physicality of Cruz, right? It's awful. Yeah. So this takes us 26 minutes into the run of the director's cut of the film. And it is as though someone were using a stopwatch at the end of the first act. Yep. This is, again, a very strong three-act structure. Very strong and very traditional three-act structure. I'll call out the midpoint when we get to it. Lily races through the frozen forest back to Nell's cottage, but it is also frozen in both temperature and it turns out in yes. time well, Yeah, yeah, because Nell, her husband, and the baby are yeah. all frozen, yeah. but they don't seem to be frozen like corpse frozen but it does seem very fairy frozen like it seems as though the clock too is also frozen so there's something that is happening here about yeah the passage of time as well i guess which is presumably why the sun will not rise again it's just that time itself has stopped the goblins arrive and lily hides blix recognizes that they are in the mortal world she specifically calls that out and casts destructive spells around the cabin using the alicorn the unicorn horn yeah. called an alicorn, which I guess is kind of etymologically derived right. from the Italian word for unicorn. But of oh. course, if you exist in the world and you have even a passing knowledge of the mythology, the deep lore of My Little Pony Friendship is Magic. <laughs> I was wondering where you were going with this. <laughs> an alicorn in My Little Pony Friendship is Magic is a unicorn with pegasus wings. Okay. It's like the ultimate evolution of oh a pony in okay. My Little Pony. <laughs> and while we might contest, we might argue that there is no reason for Lily to return to the cottage and certainly no reason for the goblins to go to the cottage except for exposition. Yeah, and there are only other that characters. a creepy scene. It I don't creepy. like it one bit. Yeah, it was upsetting yeah. to me as a child, definitely. Sure. I would, in fact, usually fast forward through that part. Yeah. Which is interesting because, like, the stuff with darkness was less upsetting to me than that but it's just you're right very creepy and unsettling it feels like we are on the precipice of violence yeah throughout that sequence that's something a really good awful point. could happen and it's so intrusive it's into their exactly. home exactly. as opposed yeah. to being led into somebody else's yeah, yeah that's interesting either way lily resolves to make things right but then we cut away from her to jack who was awoken by una the tiny little tinkerbell yes. fairy who presages the arrival of 
Gump. Honeythorn Gump. Honeythorn Gump. It's a great name. It's, it's a great name. It's a great name. performance. It's a fantastic How old is this kid? I'm so curious. He's giving so much, like, perspicacity and wisdom in his face. He's giving this, like, ageless, timeless face, but his body looks 12 years old, and I'm just so curious. Uh, this is the actor David Bennett, who plays Honeythorn Gump. He is Swiss, which explains the Germanic accent, which explains the ADRing. Yes. This is, I think, his second film in English. It's his seventh credit overall. He is, believe it or not, 18 when he 18. films this. Okay, that that makes more sense. His, he looks very young. But again, his face is giving so much more wisdom that 18 at least makes a little bit more sense. I think he is just what Peter Pan looks like in my head now. Yeah, sure. Because it's such, there is a weird, wow. there is a weird adolescent ambiguity mm. to him and his performance. He looks very young, but also not very young. Yeah. There's a weird like agelessness. Ageless to him. is absolutely correct. Yeah. I do think it's a it's a knockout physical performance. And and completely agree. Important, I think, to credit him, despite the fact that, yeah, we don't hear his voice. But absolutely. His performance of the dialogue is so compelling that the yeah. ADR doesn't even necessarily stand out that much. Yeah. Agreed. It's terrific. Uh Jack asks Gump what is going on, but Jack, and this is important, clearly isn't a fairy. Yeah. So this is where we invert our understanding, our expectation of Jack. This is what gets me to the idea that perhaps Jack is just a mortal who has strayed into the fairy realm, but has never been completely overtaken by it. He has been on its periphery. Yeah. He clearly has understanding. He, has... he knows the unicorns are sacred. He knows that touching them is right. forbidden. He can speak to birds and animals. I have but... a pet theory. Okay, let's What if it. he's a changeling? What Or not a changeling. What if he's the baby who was brought into the forest and was swapped out? And there's a fairy out in the world living Jack's life with Jack's parents. And Jack is now in the fairy world. Do you like that as a pet theory at all? Is there anything? It's an interesting idea. Right? Certainly. Yeah. No, it would explain a mortal kind of coexisting in, yeah. in that realm. We don't spend a lot of kind time. Kind of a Mowgli raised by wolves. Right? Yes. We don't spend a lot of time traditionally with the mortal child that no. winds up in the fairy realm as a result of of being changeling. That's a great idea, though. Changeling myth is usually used as an explanation for babies and young children dying unexpectedly. Yes, it's it's a means of distancing ourselves personally and culturally from the grief of a world in which death is swift and random. Yes, and all. So we don't spend a lot of time. You know, it's generally considered to be a good thing, right? Mm. Oh, but at least your child, this fairy child died because fairy children can't live in the mortal world. Right. But your child is off with the fairies. Isn't that yes. wonderful? Yes. Oh. So, fair. yeah, maybe that's an interesting idea. That's a very sad idea. It's a very that's true. sad idea. Yeah. yeah. I would be tempted immediately then to try and draw a connection between Jack and Nell and Nell's husband. Though now it doesn't really look old enough to have a, no, <laughs> a child I don't as think old so. as Tom yeah. Cruise. Yeah. <laughs> no resemblance there. We then get a really interesting turn because Jack confesses that he took Lily to see the unicorns and that she touched one. Gump reacts in a horrified manner to that yeah. as if touching the unicorn is the problem. Right. He is drawing a causal connection, yeah. as we mentioned earlier, between Lily touching the unicorn and the world falling into darkness. Right. Suggesting this like cosmological connection between... Blix and Lily and the unicorn and, and right. folding Jack into that, too, I suppose, as though this is a chain of events that was going to unfold anyway. Yeah, it's it's interesting. It does definitely seem to put the fault on Lily in a way that it's not entirely. Yes, or at least recognizes Lily's 
complicity in something. Right? He's definitely judging this as a moral failing for yes. Lily. Yeah. Yes. Jack protests that he did it for love, and Gump asks him a fairy riddle. What is a bell that does not ring, yet its knell makes the angels sing? The answer is... Do you a remember? Flower bluebells. It's a bluebell. Yeah. This is actually a folk myth about bluebells. This is a traditional piece of, of English folklore in particular, that if you are out in the forest and you hear the bluebells ring, it means that a dark fairy is coming to you and that you will be dead soon. Wow. Ask not for who the bluebell tolls. <laughs> it tolls for thee. It tolls for thee. <laughs> this answer doesn't please Gump, though, who cavorts and thrashes around in the snow until he apparently dies i don't know what it's is happening so through that sequence here. at this all this is a weird sequence i can see why this one got cut a little bit honestly jack approaches him gump sits up and offers jack a small cup of fairy wine yeah and even him more a fairy friend <laughs> everything i know about fairy tales tells me that this is a trap every single thing that i know about fairy tales tells me that this is going to end very very badly for jack i am waiting for the other shoe to drop this whole time this is going to be fairy wine laced with peyote and ayahuasca <laughs> The fact that it isn't is weird. The fact that yeah. this is just played completely straight is so odd. Well, they skip even more. This also in the uh, extended materials on the Blu-ray. And apparently there's a whole sequence where he's playing the fiddle and they all are dancing and Jack is dancing. And so the line is not fairy friend and lover's fool. Mm -hmm. It is fairy friend and dancing fool. And they change it. Interesting. So there's a little bit more time. And I guess the dance is just part of, like, accepting him into the fold or something. I don't know. Well, but I even don't know. The traditionally, fairy dances are supposed to be seductive and enchanting, but dangerous. Yes. That's the, you get lured into the dance, and you dance and dance until you drop. Well, or you get lured into the drop. dance, and when you emerge, hundreds of years have passed. Oh. This is, you know, the seduction of fairy. Fairy is supposed to be, you know, yeah. awesome. In the sense of being terrifying yeah. as well as being in the sense of, of striking awe. Also, can we talk about the bubbles in this scene? Oh, sure. No, they're just bubbles. Why are there bubbles? <laughs> Who put on the bubble machine? You didn't for see the Brown Tom plugging party? in. There. Right? What is happening? I love the glitter. Yeah. Every, I love it. Unapologetic about the glitter. I love it. It falling with the snow, I think, is gorgeous. Uh, I'm not. Sold on the chicken feathers, as we discussed earlier. Which, I just like the whole fair, thing makes me feel sneezy. They would not have read as chicken feathers in the original theatrical run. We are seeing that they are chicken That's feathers true. because it's high definition. Yeah. But even in a theater, it wouldn't have been that high definition. Yeah, back so it would just look like, a, like, like cottonwood fluff. It would have looked yeah. like fluff. It would have looked like dandelion moats. It would have yeah. looked, yeah. I exactly. do like when cottonwood is, flo is yeah. floating around. That happens a lot here in Oklahoma. And I do, there are some people who really hate it, especially people who have like a cottonwood in their yard. Can you imagine? But... <laughs> <laughs> I have been to people's houses who have a cottonwood in their yeah. yard during that season, and I see why they hate it. But it is a little bit magical uh, when you're just like driving through or even taking a walk in the park. And it's, uh, yeah, just so light and fluffy in the yeah. air. So I can see then why that was thought to be something lovely and something magical. But sure. The bubbles, it does though. remind me too much of bugs. <laughs> and yeah, the bubbles are just, there's just no way to explain them. And I don't like that. Like, I can't. This is not a cottonwood tree. This is not. I mean, it's bubbles. It's like, bubbles. I, it's, I just don't understand. I think it's a mistake. They're magical. <laughs> They're just That's it. Magic a wizard bubbles. did it. When fairies come, bubbles come. Okay. Now we know. Jack yeah. treks through the snowy forest in the company of the fairies. The snowy forest, by the way, looks incredible. This is where so all of that production value at yeah. Pinewood is. It's, it's worth it. It's I all right there agree. on screen. It's gorgeous. 
Eventually, he finds the fallen unicorn and the grieving mayor nearby. He kneels and asks forgiveness, then returns to the others with the news that the mayor has told him to recover the unicorn's horn. Can we talk about this mayor in this particular Again, sequence? Look, there's no way to do this without being horse cock. a little indelicate. Massive, <laughs> massive horse cock on this mayor. a little indelicate. Listen, a I'm just indelicate. saying. Yes. I mean, it's, it's not the floppiness of the horn that is distracting. <laughs> Let's put it that way. But we don't know. We don't know how unicorns, you know, work. You know, that's true. That's true. Maybe, maybe, maybe they're like seahorses. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> you know what happened there was that what? you said that perfectly reasonable and rational thing. And what I heard was sea monkeys. Oh. No. What I heard was you sent away for them in a small packet. <laughs> And then they die immediately. <laughs> Genitalia aside, a segue I never thought I would have to use. I'm so sorry. What do you think of this moment between Jack and the unicorn? Does this feel magical? He has yes. now moved completely into a heroic role mm. in this narrative. He has effectively, for the rest of the film, become a yeah. co-protagonist alongside Lily. This is maybe work? my favorite bit of cinematography. Really? I think that shot where the one unicorn, who I guess is dead at this point, um, or not quite yes, dead, but yes. yeah, well, slain. The slain unicorn is laying I down. compared this to Nell and her husband and yes, baby. Yeah, that, frozen in time. Yeah, frozen in time. Yes, absolutely. Um, and then the other unicorn is like prancing around that tree. You have all the glitter snow and this incredible sky in the background with yeah. like blue and orange. It's so, like, the best parts of the crazy Lisa Frank art that we were talking yeah, about sure. earlier. Like, it's, I want it as a giant poster in my room growing up <laughs> as a child. I want to go backwards. Or maybe, you know what, maybe we will have that, the reclamation, the restoration, as you said. Maybe we can do that now. And just sure, have absolutely. Just a studio one day that has just, like, a massive wall of glitter unicorn art. I don't know. <laughs> it's gorgeous. I love that. Yes. <laughs> Gump says that he can, in the fairy tale tradition, bring Jack to find weapons. And he kind of does, except when they get close, he says that he can't lead Jack to find the weapons and instead sends Jack on ahead with Una for company. Mm. I love the little sparkly effect of Una, Una's by the way. Great. Just little that little moat yeah. of light. So good. So cool. Love Jack it. finds the cache of weapons, armor, and gold, including the armor set that he will wear, mm -hmm. which, behind the scenes detail, you guys, is made of. Oh, I don't know. Flattened bottle caps. I love that. Literally, soda bottle caps popped off, flattened, spray-painted gold. They look and great. And then encrusted with glitter because this scene in particular. This scene in particular is so full of glitter. Tom Cruise's hand when he reaches for the sword and it's the whole thing is glittered. Why? It's so odd. He's well, not covered in glitter for the rest of the film. Because I think we're supposed to be reading this as the reflected light of all of the gold in the room, right? Again, we're seeing uh, it. In, okay. We're seeing it as very crisp motes of light on his skin because of the high oh, definition of high that def. we've got. But it would have been more, you know, it would have been kind of a blurred bokeh effect. Yeah, right? you know what would be fun to do is to watch this movie on a projector. Oh, right, to blur yeah. it out, to take the blur director's cut and blur it out just a yeah. little bit. That's a nice idea. That would be really fun. Yeah, that's a fun party idea. We Especially if you could do that, that, like out of doors, you know, at the lakeside yeah. or something, Fourth of July weekend. Oh, shut up! That's yeah. pretty good. Very good. Yeah. Una takes her real form? Question mark. I'm unclear yes. why Una is hiding as a little Tinkerbell fairy when it turns out she is just a full-grown Tinkerbell fairy. Yeah, I don't know. Or or can take full shape. Mm -hmm. I don't know. But it's this a is very 
Julia Roberts as Tinkerbell right. moment. <laughs> <laughs> this is where she offers to take any form he wants if only mm. he helps them. He takes the sword and goes about his business. Lily, meanwhile, has been tracking the goblins and finds them around a campfire as Blix plays with the horn only for the darkness to appear. Yes. In guise this time, which I think makes less sense if you have seen him at the beginning of the right. theatrical cut, but in the director's cut works really nicely. It's a very impressive visual effect it without being in cool. any way explicit. Yeah. It's just here is a shadow and your imagination is going to do things with it. <laughs> Blunder the goblin tries to wield the horn to defeat the darkness and take his power, but evil will not be so easily vanquished. Blix tells the darkness that the unicorns are dead, but the darkness points at the dawn that is breaking. The mirror <laughs> must die too. And we get, again, what is a really interesting and this time not Christian bit of, of world building. Blick says, she's just a female lord. She has no power. To which Tim Curry thunders, only the power of creation. Which is pretty fucking cool. Which, yeah. Yeah. Is yeah. A, cool. B, accurate. <laughs> yes. C, what? How is, what? How, yeah. Yeah, that's true. Are you so suggesting? just the, seahorses, again. Yeah. If oh there's my just God. the one mare. You did it. <laughs> You stumbled into the secret of the unicorns, asexual repopulation. There it is. Wow. Boom. Lily flees from this horrifying scene. She finds the mayor, recently left by Jack and Brown Tom, who had been left to guard it. She warns them that the goblins are coming, and the goblins do. So, you know, we get a few minutes of Brown Tom deflecting their arrows with, the with frying his pan. frying pan. Yeah, very tangled moment here. He's struck in the hat and drops... Mm -hmm. So that we can have the joke about his wine bottle being broken, I yeah. guess. Gump. The meaning. wine looks like blood, though. So that's kind of, is yeah. it blood? I don't know. It's all it's just a little silly. It's yeah. weird. No, yeah. he's fine. And, and he's fine. there will be no consequence to this goblin attack in the middle of this film. <laughs> Gump, meanwhile, leads Jack back to the site of the battle where they discover that the goblins have now captured Lily and the mayor. So all of this, we're just moving the pieces around on the yeah. board just to get yes. everyone where they need to be. They give chase, eventually ending up in... The Swamp of Sadness, uh, the, 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 the mire of, of, of misery. It's mm -hmm. a, the Swamp Witch Hangout Town. Oh, yeah. This is Meg Mucklebones. Let's talk Meg a little about Muckle Meg Mucklebones. If any aspect of this film is underserved by the theatrical cut, it is Meg Mucklebones. Because I that scene agree. is incomprehensible in completely. the theatrical cut. But also you can tell something is happening. It sure seems like you're you, missing something. Yes, yeah. and you yeah. are. Yeah, You sure are. Especially if you notice Meg Mucklebones like weirdly checking herself out in yep. the shield. There's a reason for that. Yes. Jack charms her urging her to examine her reflection in his oh-so-shiny shield. Yes. And then decapitating her. But to even encapsulate it like that is to underserve the performance yeah. of Robert Picardo. It's so good. It's, it's so, so good. good. Yeah. This was an interesting uh, scene to hear them talk about making, too, because, of course, he's in so much prosthetics and so much makeup, but really under the water. And they're really pulling him up. And apparently, Actually, unrecognizable, we should say, too. Like, if you I didn't no know that it was idea. Robert Picardo, you would never no get it. I had no idea. was so pleasantly surprised. Uh, but when they pull him up out of the water, he is just... The whole costume is has absorbed all of this water, and it's slowly leaking out, so oh. we can, like finally breathe again as he's like doing the crazy thing with his fingers yeah and it's just a wild sequence i'm thinking now this is another performance alongside tim curry alongside mia sara robert picardo is also doing a thing that we have seen a hundred times and making it feel fresh and yeah. original mm. and weirdly disconcerting yeah. I find Meg, Meg is the type of character in a fantasy story, in a fairy tale story that I just have no time for. Yeah. 
I have no time for like just for this to play out conventionally. Mm -hmm. But this scene is so interesting. And of course, we're referencing Greek myth too. You know, we're referencing uh, the Medusa, the the, the reflection in the shield, even the beheading to some extent. So we're pulling elements from just all over. Yeah. And making a really interesting and original composite product here. And I think Cruz is really performing really nicely here as Jack. This thinking on his feet yes. and surprising himself yes. by getting it right and doing the thing is really charming. This might be Jack's high point yeah. in the story, both as a yeah. character and for Cruz as a performer. It's weird that we've gone this far into it and really not talked about Tom Cruise very much at all. But that's it's not because very Tom Cruise. It's just not, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. And there's not really a whole lot to do with the character either, mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. think, because he's so like innocent and bewildered. Yeah. I don't know. It works for me. I like it. And I do think that the romance between him and Miyasara works as well. But it is more true of this than any other film that we've discussed, that that this role could have been interchangeably performed yeah. by another actor. Yeah. Yeah. The slaying of Meg Mucklebones, though, is the midpoint of the film. He has just proven mm. himself as a hero, not through his martial skill entirely, but through his wit and wisdom. Right. Very traditional for, for heroes who enter into Definitely. fairy. Definitely. Definitely. Jack and the fairies find their way beneath the world tree fortress of darkness, yeah. whatever this thing is. It's, it's amazing. Cool. Before falling into a prison cell where they discover Blunder the Goblin, who has been imprisoned because of trying to kill the darkness. And you kind of have to squint to see the plot progression that is happening here. <laughs> but maybe Blunder was an undercover agent the whole time because it turns out that Blunder's a dwarf in a hat. Yeah. Fell in with the wrong crowd. I think he says something like Goblin that. Goblin hiring yeah, practices. Got not good, clearly. <laughs> Clearly not good. I should say, in the fairy tale tradition, right? Goblins and dwarves are the same. Like they yeah. are just this kind of a blur of mm. of those kinds of diminutive creatures of mischief and, sure. and malice. You know, dwarves traditionally do absolutely fall into that. It's really not until Tolkien that we rehabilitate dwarves as more noble and less mischievous. Yeah, he really creates that that archetype. In fact, we're deep here through this sequence in our good traditional fairy tale storytelling because we try to magic the lock so that we can escape. But it's iron and fairy magic does not affect iron. So cool. So cool. Yeah, that was great. The furnaces of the darkness rage. An ogre approaches. He takes Blunder and drags him out. Mm -hmm. Una, though, manages to retrieve the key and free the others all in exchange for a kiss from Jack. After she transforms into the guise of Lily, but right. also, you know, in her own guise too. Yes. Annabelle Lanyon, by the way, is 24 when this film wow. shoots two years older than Cruz. She looks, she's got a look. Yeah, I don't even know how to describe it. It's mostly glitter. Mostly glitter <laughs> and wild, wild hair. Crazy big eyes, yes, with strange contacts yeah. in. Yeah. You know, when we're giving due credit to Miyasara for her performance in this film, this is a moment that I would want to highlight mm. because her performance as Una as Lily yes. is Different terrific. and great. Yeah. Really strong. Yeah, yeah, really like, what do they call it? Slow-eyed? Yes, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. Interesting. This is also the sequence where Jack describes himself as human, uses that word, which is also really interesting. So strange. Una holds Jack for a moment in the cell, reaffirming that he is mortal, and then releases him nonetheless. They search the fortress, then decide to split up into teams. We get a little comedic. We get a really bad synchronizing watches joke. Yes. Which doesn't do Only in the director's cut. Yeah, we don't need to split up into teams anyway, but... 
Right. It's, you know. And the weird, like, we're, magical timekeeping device yes, that exactly. Gump has. It's yeah. a strange globe with, like, a etching of different woodland But we're talking about, it. you know, we'll meet again in 400 beats of a hummingbird's heart or whatever. Yeah, yeah. And three shakes of a badger's tail and what? <laughs> this is also, we cut from that to darkness appealing to the image of his father, protesting that he has been yeah. distracted by the girl. So I've this not is, felt desire like this. <laughs> you're like, mm-hmm, so this hi. is kind of a weird low point in terms of the movie's clarity. I mm-hmm. feel like the prison, the reveal of blunder, the trade with Una and her clearly having an entirely different agenda. Jack insisting that he's human. The synchronizing watch. All of this just feels a little undercooked. It feels a little, a little mm. mealy as you're moving through it. I mean, still visually incredible. Of oh course. yeah, and you're right. Tim Curry expressing frustrated desire is, it's hot stuff. It's hot. It's it really turns hot. out he just doesn't have a choice. He just has to go and seduce this girl. <laughs> he heard about it from his father, who might be a fireplace. Anyway. <laughs> Lily runs and dances through the fortress, pursued unseen by Una. And I don't know this for sure, but I have to imagine that these gigantic Mines of Moria pillars mm. here are the trees from the forest set redressed oh i don't know because they're certainly reading of similar magnitude Mm, i have no idea that's a good question yeah it's a gorgeous sequence too oh it is Mm. i love the way that miyasara moves me too through this no yeah Yeah, i don't remember if i said that earlier or not but her movement in general i think is just breathtaking i don't know if she was trained in dance but she is certainly certainly seems that she was Yeah. yeah absolutely the dwarves meanwhile find the mayor but Really, we are focused here on the deep breathing of the darkness, which grows in intensity Mm. and magnitude until he tempts Lily with glittering treasures, including a diamond-studded necklace that I know I have to buy for you all. Oh my God, oh my God, oh my God. (laughs) And the enchanted dress. The enchanted dress. The dress dances toward her, Mm. dances with her. Lily is overwhelmed. She is, I mean, actually seduced. Yep. This is maybe the high point of the film, I think. I in terms completely of agree. Visual design, yes. in terms of cinematography, in terms of performance, in terms of score. I love the Goldsmith score yeah. through this section. Yeah. This is than a the knockout. It, I completely agree. It's my favorite part by a pretty wide margin. I love to, like, this is a nice place for me to see a little bit of a queer reading, too, that she is ultimately seduced by something that's much more... By the Hot Topic version of herself? Yes. Yes. <laughs> Yes, ultimately. Who yes. would not be seduced by that? <laughs> Thank you for putting such a fine point on it. But yes, absolutely so. I think that that is just extraordinary to me. Um, yeah, that's, there's something that's definitely homoerotic about it. And there's something, oh, it's j- this idea of the interplay between her own like innocence and experience uh, and definitely sexuality, like absolutely 100 percent. yeah they're 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 not even trying to hide it at this point um i love that when we see the dancing dress we don't understand just how revealing that dress is because the the the, the, the black clad figure who is yes, wearing the, 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 the dress, glittery one the dress, yes yeah. 
um, you just can't tell until it's switched yeah. out in, into Mia Sarah wearing it. And then it's just like, holy shit, hot. Here's a key distinction between the theatrical cut and the directorial cut, mm. which I think speaks to Scott's insecurity when he is putting the theatrical cut together. Mm. In the theatrical cut, we reveal that transition. Suddenly she is wearing the dress with a flash of light. There's an actual like effect on mm-hmm. screen. Whereas in the directorial cut, we do it just in a cut. It is just yeah. completely natural and organic and sudden. It's way more confident. This yes. is, you know, it's amazing, honestly, that we've made it this far without really talking about Labyrinth. Oh, <laughs> yeah. This is so much more successful Agreed. than the very similar sequence in Labyrinth. Uh, I know that I don't like Labyrinth as much as you do. Well, yeah. I do love that sequence in Labyrinth. It's one of my favorites as well. And it's definitely one that it gets my imagination so much. It's another one with a really great dress. Maybe I just like sure. really great dresses. Maybe I'm a simple girl after all. But I do think that that one is not as confident. And like just when things get interesting, she wakes up. Uh, yeah, it's also a little less about our protagonist, about our heroine yes. specifically, right? Labyrinth is like less inclined to admit that it's about sex. While being cinematically much more overtly about sex, yeah. right? Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, yeah. Those would those would be an interesting side by side. It'll it'll be difficult to pick another one. I know that Never Ending Story is is going to be. I think Never Ending Story and Labyrinth are the two on the list for like what's the one that goes next to this. I one. am starting to think that perhaps we should just put many many more movies on that poll for our patrons to choose between. Well, maybe maybe so. Or we'll, we'll maybe we can, we can do as filter many them like. out over on the Discord if you would like to be a part of that conversation. That's patreon.com slash Last Star Pod. Come pledge your support. Come join these conversations. We'll yeah. hang out with you all day on the Discord and talk about these movies. <laughs> so true. As you can tell by the length of this podcast, we just can't help ourselves. This, by the way, this this moment of revelation, darkness emerging from the mirror, I guess, wherever yes. darkness is at this point. We get the shock, you're right, of Lily suddenly wearing the dress, of suddenly mm. being made up in this slightly, you know, Molgothy, slightly hot topic yeah, kind of way. Yeah, the hair and makeup don't work for me very much. But it does. It does. Yeah. Then we get the emergence of darkness. And structurally, this is perfect because this is the end of the second act ah it's so mechanically precise in terms of both its narrative structure and the running time of the director's cut as a whole and wow this reveal of tim curry if you haven't seen him up until now yeah this is incredible yeah i can see why they had the argument to reveal him here i really do uh and honestly if i had just maybe gotten the crazy glow light sequence somewhere else. Just somewhere it else. Been okay. Yeah, I just hated sure. that I lost it completely. Like just like a dance sequence at the end of the film. <laughs> I saw my baby. <laughs> <laughs> Lily is both terrified and enchanted, I guess. The darkness is tempting her. We are told it was her sin that killed the unicorn mm. and, quote, the evil seed of what you have done germinates within you. It's I so think there hot. might be a metaphor here. It's I'm so not hot. sure. <laughs> Again, we seem a little confused about what exactly happened with the unicorns. Yeah. Nobody seems to know. Is Which is okay. Somehow, I think. You know, responsible, culpable for what mm. happened. I'm fascinated by it. I think yeah. it really works for me. Una, Jack, and Gump are listening at the door while all of this is going on. The darkness reveals that the last unicorn will die tonight and that he himself can be killed by sunlight, which probably won't come up in any functional way. (laughs) Jack and the others reunite with the dwarves and go in search of every reflective surface they can find right after they rescue Blunder from beneath a pie crust. Side quest. I wouldn't have done it myself. Probably not (laughs) worth the 50 XP, but you know. 
The darkness invites Lily to share his meal while the others <laughs> gather giant ogre dishes. In a scene, the thing that I do like about that scene is that it puts me in mind of the chip the glasses and crack the plates song oh, from that's Peter Jackson's Bagans The Hobbit. Hates. Yeah. Yes. Uh-huh. It's just a bunch of dwarves kind of cavorting in a kitchen. <laughs> he doesn't want that. Yeah. <laughs> we transition to a battle, an outright fight with the ogres before... I'm unsure how this fight resolves. Honestly, yeah. cinematically, it's a little unclear. He dumps boiling soup on them. Is that what is happening? There are a couple of moments here at the end of the film. I'm thinking of this moment, and I'm thinking of the moment when Jack plunges his hand into whatever he plunges his hand into to retrieve Which the horn. Seems fine, I guess. It seemed it's like it was going to be bad, but I guess water it's just water that is on fire. Just water, though water that's on fire. There's definite flames there, and it seemed like it was bubbling as though it were boiling, but it's obviously not because it. He just right? digs his hand in there for a while. So I don't know. Yeah. He has an oven glove that we just didn't see him recover from that cave of treasure. In, the glitter on his hand was protecting right. <laughs> It's asbestos glitter. It's the only thing that's worse than regular glitter. <laughs> Meanwhile, the dwarves begin to climb a shaft back to the surface using the plates to direct the sun's last rays into sure. the depths of the darkness's fortress. The darkness, meanwhile, asks Lily to sit and talk with him. Talk with me this is incredible it's so good he tells her that he dreams of an eternity with her and that dreams are how he influences mortals he offers his heart his soul his love and you'd be kind of tempted i mean right yeah which is what makes her reversal so interesting it makes it so convincing almost i just wish it took a little bit longer she does it so quickly there's a little more time the director's cut where she does sit into the chair for a while and the chair is kind of alive which I think in the theatrical release you you don't get that sense of of the chair's like physical presence there's a couple of things that are happening here she is in the underworld yeah she is clearly realizing that something is happening but cinematically it's unclear what exactly she is realizing but certainly she's realizing that she has a power over him and I love it tells you a lot about me that her first turn is to be bratty her first (laughs) turn is to challenge him we're revealing a lot about ourselves <laughs> on this podcast. <laughs> then she turns the tables, offering to stay if he just lets her kill that unicorn. <laughs> he is monologuing as the heroes put the last parts of their plan in place. Una flies to the surface. There's just a lot of distraction. There's a lot of action here, mm-hmm. kind of conventional children's film action going on in this last section. Jack and Gump rush inside. They see the beginning of the ritual. The mare is chained down. Lily's about to kill it, but Jack insists that he trusts her. And sure enough, it's all a ploy. Lily swings the sword, strikes the chain, frees the unicorn. Darkness hits Lily in in what is a weirdly physical beat. Yeah. The battle rages as Jack swings into action. Una makes it to the last mirror up on the top of this elevated chimney or whatever she tries to wake the dwarf there jack plunges his hand into that burning thing to get the uh, unicorn horn which considering it's so important to the darkness wow he's being pretty casual about where it is yes (laughs) maybe should be keeping close put like a little apple air tag on that just so you know where it is put it in a drawer i don't know this always seemed to me like magma like it's going to sink deep into the earth or something yeah and it's just it just turns out it's nothing it's just yeah, a little I, I don't just a little hole totally just a little, yeah it doesn't make any sense at all he hurls the unicorn horn into the chest of the darkness just as the light of the sun bursts through the doors powerful light in this place i like that yes. just reflected sunlight blows open the doors uh-huh 
and strikes the darkness. He clings to the edge of the void. And thank God, because we need one more Tim Curry monologue in this film. It's fantastic. <laughs> Just like hanging on this with is his a, fingernails. Yeah. We're not so different, you and I. You think you can have light without darkness. It's it's positing a kind of of philosophical schema, right? A kind of cosmological mm-hmm. schema of the sort that we've been searching for through this entire film, except it's super not. Yeah. It and now that he's gone, then what? Yeah. The opening crawl. Mm-hmm. But that's all that it does. Yeah. And the opening crawl, you know, only in the theatrical version. So I don't completely know what to make of all of that, but it is fantastic. Jack strikes him with the sword, throwing him into the void where he will presumably languish eternally. The day Yeah, he just has blows been saved. up into stars, I guess. In some versions, yeah, we'll get to that in just a moment. <laughs> Gump tells Jack that Lily is under a powerful spell and that Jack is the only one who can answer this riddle. He says goodbye to the fairies and goes back to the pool in the forest where he dives in to recover Lily's ring, somehow reaffirming her innocence and femininity in the face of her self-autonomy and power in her black dress. How did she get back there in her white dress? I do not know. Who redressed her and laid her down in the woods again? It's odd. It's not very clear it's not completely satisfying it's not yeah unfortunately the horn is returned to the stallion who returns to life and suddenly it's no longer winter jack puts the ring on lily's finger yes you're right after someone has changed her back into her white dress and then kisses her waking her from her concussion and then we get endings there are many endings well there are there are three endings really Mm -hmm. the first is the american theatrical version right Jack and Lily assure each other of their love. They're going to be together forever. The unicorns reunite in the distance. They all run off into the sunset together. Happy ending, except the darkness laughs from the void. In the European theatrical version, it's exactly the same, except happier ending. The darkness does not laugh from the void. The darkness does not laugh at this time. So there's no bittersweet, like, looming threat of a sequel. Mm. There's just nothing. God, I would love a sequel. It's just a happy ever. Oh, we need a legacy sequel of Legend. (laughs) We need 65-year-old Tom Cruise. We need (laughs) 60-year-old Mia Sara. Hell yeah. They've got to get the band back together. (laughs) 75-year-old Tim Curry in 40 pounds of prosthetics. Would watch. In the director's cut of the ending, though, things are completely different. Not just the ending, but its intent, its framing of the story is different. Lily and Jack basically confess that they are in love with each other. And then Lily says, much to the audience's surprise, I'm sure, well, anyway, I'd better get going because I'm a princess and I have responsibilities. Right. Can I come see you tomorrow? clearly forest guy, (laughs) need to stay in the forest. And the implication there is that he is not mortal. The implication is that he belongs in the forest, that that's where he lives. So, yeah, and you're right. She says, can I come and see you tomorrow? So we're not ending the relationship. But we're maintaining a different kind of relationship. She understands that she has responsibilities back in the mortal realm. And the last shot here is Jack running off to the unicorns and the fairies. The exact same shot. The same shot, except Lily's not in it. But Lily's not in it. He's even waving to Gump, and they're all still over there with the unicorns waving. Very odd. You don't get the song in the director's cut. Legends can be now and forever. Which one of these endings is mm. your favorite? As if I had to ask. Director's cut is <laughs> yeah. my favorite. Yeah. It's yeah. so interesting. Yeah. Better it's beginning, so better ending. Complex. Just better. It reframes our understanding of Lily and Jack's relationship through mm-hmm. the film as a whole and crucially 
gives her autonomy, gives her adult autonomy. She makes this reckless adolescent juvenile promise, this very fairy tale promise. I shall throw my ring into this pond and whosoever returneth it to me shall be my husband. <laughs> and here at the end, he does exactly that. And she's like, nah, though. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm, it's not, I'm super busy. I've really got to get back. I didn't even think about that. That's funny. Yeah. But I mm -hmm. love that we restore that to her. Having had her sexual autonomy challenged by the darkness. Yes. Having had her engage with it deliberately mm -hmm. to be sly and deceptive, right? To wield her feminine wiles. Yeah. You can't really imagine her being turned on by Jack anymore, can you? I mean, possibly never. Yeah. Maybe but, she's just yeah. like, oh, sweet boy. <laughs> no, I have to go back to the palace and find someone just larger than I you. I just need someone with more yeah. daddy energy. I'm so sorry. <laughs> this is never going to work. At the end of the longest podcast ever. <laughs> and my favorite. So far, right? So far. <laughs> by a wide margin. We've got to talk about where to put this damn thing on the list. And this is going to be a huge <sighs> challenge because we've set ourselves a bad precedent, yeah. which is that we only listed the outsiders once. We listed the outsiders first on the list, but we did not differentiate between the theatrical cut and the director's cut. Yeah. And when I look at this list of films, I want to differentiate between the director's cut of Legend and the theatrical yeah. cut of Legend. Again, I will reiterate, the theatrical cut is pretty good. If you haven't seen it and it's all you've got, it's great. You know, put, I think even children today could sit down and watch that film and be surprised by it and be delighted yeah. by it. Yeah, our 10-year-old saw the cover of the Blu-ray and was like, this movie looks awesome. <laughs> I was like, we might watch this together, actually. <laughs> this this cover is making promises that the movie itself does not keep. But, you know. Uh, maybe, yeah. <laughs> I mean, Tim Curry does look awesome even, I mean, on, the I even mean, on the cover of the Blu-ray, right? pretty cool. Let's, maybe I'm anticipating a conversation that we don't need to have. Maybe you have yeah. a, a considered unified position. Maybe I mean, I'm have... happy to just go with the director's cut version just for the sake of simplicity. I'm pretty sure that's what we ended up doing with Outsiders is doing was, complete yeah. novel because the theatrical release is just not good in our opinion. That's true, though it's basically impossible to get the theatrical release of Outsiders. And it's actually kind of difficult to get the directorial oh, release yeah. of yeah. Legends. So you have to buy it, the it's Blu -ray. kind of apples and it's oranges. Just $8. This this is going to be my big know, thing. I'm just telling everyone to We buy have the listeners Blu -ray. all around the world, and it may not be that accessible. <laughs> that's true. That's true. Yeah. Um, that's okay. This isn't a real list. It's just yours and mine. And I think that we can How decide. How dare you? Well. <laughs> <laughs> it's, this is not going before a committee. So I think we can just use the director's cut, which we both prefer, and, okay. and place that one where we want it. That's actually a good policy. I like the idea of taking the best possible version of yeah. each of these films. That's that's good. We're not okay. going to have to deal with this a lot because there no. really aren't any major that I can think of right now. I'm running through the filmography in my mind, but I can't think of any other major director's cut releases that we'll have to contend with. Yeah, as I don't think so. You know, there is the rumor of the unseen Kubrick cut of uh, Eyes Wide Shut, <gasps> but Ooh. that has not been released and probably okay. will never be released if indeed it even exists. So. <laughs> sure. Okay. So, okay. Taking the best version of this film, taking the director's mm -hmm. cut of Legend, where does it go on the list? Right now, let's run through it. The Outsiders at number one, Risky Business at two, All the Right Moves at three, Taps at four, Endless Love at five, and Losing It has lost it at six. Where do we put the seventh film in Tom Cruise's filmography? I mean, I feel like I might have tipped my hand, but I'm very happy to put this one at the top. I'm, I'm going to watch this again and probably not too long from now for I am, pleasure. I am happy to put this at the top of the list. I have one minor hesitation, which mm. is simply that I, I think in terms of the quality of the film, it absolutely deserves to go at the top of the list. This is a list of Tom Cruise movies. 
It's not a list of Tom Cruise roles, oh, which would be a little different. Uh, but this is the uh, least Cruise that we are going to get in his entire filmography. Maybe, you know, Tropic Thunder might might exceed that. Maybe we're going to uh, get some weird performance from him down the line. I have not been thinking about rating these movies based on Tom Cruise's performance. I have been thinking about ranking these movies that Tom Cruise is in. That's fair. Yeah. So... If I need to rethink the way I'm doing it, I can. No, losing it might not be dead last. If we were just exactly. ranking the performances, yeah, right? maybe he's better in losing it than he than is, he is in, in Endless Love, than he yeah, is in Taps. Definitely yeah. than he is But you're right. Measuring these films as films, yeah, that's... I don't see a way that Legend does not go in the top Move of the list. Move it to the top. I love it. All right. There it is. We have a new winner, you guys. Woo. Thanks so much for listening to this <laughs> outrageously long podcast to the director's cut, the extended. I could have done another hour easily. Okay. Let's go back to the beginning. <laughs> you shut up. Challenge accepted. What do you want to talk about? <laughs> it's basically Tim Curry. <laughs> Is Tim Curry on Cameo? Do you think I could go and pay Tim Curry a hundred bucks to have him read to you that monologue? <laughs> but we must, we must draw a veil. We must step back from the world of fairy mm. into the mortal realm and conclude <laughs> this podcast. Guys, Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much so for much sticking fun. with us. Thank you so much for your support. If you would like to hear more from us, including someday soon, a discussion of Labyrinth, a discussion of Neverending Story, yeah. a discussion, we're probably going to do The Princess Bride sometime. I don't know. I can't I imagine know. that we yeah. will. Let's, let's not make promises we can't keep. Look, on any <laughs> given day, there's like a 5% chance that we're going to do a podcast about The Princess Bride. Sure. Let's be honest. And when we do, we're going to have those discussions over on our Patreon page, patreon.com slash Pod. Go pledge your support. Go get more episodes of this nonsense. Yes. And help us make more episodes of this nonsense yes. still further. We would love to do more and more and make more things. And yeah, money equals making things. That's just pretty much how our world shakes out, right? Yeah. It's, yeah. A, it's a pretty clean equation. Yes. Yeah. I don't have to go to work. I will make stuff. Patreon <laughs> is a magical machine where dollar bills go in and podcasts and films and yeah. essays and things come out the That's other side. Exactly That's exactly correct. Goes. Yeah. Next week, who knows? We might even be producing a longer podcast than this one mm -hmm. because next week, 28 days after the release in America Wild. of Legend, <laughs> we are going to be looking at what is, I think, still in many ways, the definitive Tom Cruise performance. This, this week, the least amount of Cruise we're ever going to get. Next week, maximum Cruise. <laughs> As we look at Tony Scott's 1986 military fantasy movie, Top Gun. So I cannot excited. wait. Until then, thanks so much for listening. Connect with us on all the socials. Head on over to laststarpod.com to find all of our links and business. We'll talk to you soon. Take care. Have fun. Have fun.